Hi, everybody. Sifan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Yes, we had quite a show this evening. I think you'll really enjoy it. The first up was a listener who questioned the politically correct ban on the use of the word nigger. And he demanded to know why he couldn't tell jokes using that word. And uh, we had a great conversation, I think, about legitimate sensitivity to a historically brutal and ugly word and uh, the degree to which it is used inside the black community and why it probably is used inside the black community and the wide divergence of use of the word within the black community. So it was a really great conversation and I made a pretty strong case for what I think is the real new racism that is occurring in the world. The second caller was uh, calling from a giant train wreck of a family situation and uh, he had been turned on to peaceful parenting late in the game through this show, through Free Domain Radio. And his family was in crisis. His uh, children were dating, I guess what we could charitably be called, dirtbags and were at risk of uh, wrecking their lives that way. His uh, younger daughter, youngest daughter, had called the cops when her mother came home saying, I don't know who this woman is. I don't know why she's in the, in our home. So, yeah, it was a crisis situation. And um, I think you'll agree with the way that I handled it, um, which was the only way that I could see it could be handled. So that was a interesting conversation. I think we did some real good there to help save a struggling family. And the third caller had questions about why it is that people who get into libertarianism either end up as like complete open border guys or sort of closed-minded, semi-fascistic types uh, who value their own particular culture or race and so on and seem to be very exclusionary. And uh, I didn't exactly agree with that false dichotomy, and we had a pretty rousing discussion about um, uh, nation-state, ethnicity, and uh, tribalism, and all of that, and culture in particular, culture in particular, because his view was that the Industrial Revolution destroyed religion, destroyed culture, and opened up the way for nihilism. So we had a rousing debate about the historical validity of that approach. So uh, without any further ado, here's the show. Please, of course, send your feedback to us. We look forward to hearing from you and what you think. And as always, if you find these conversations helpful, and I'm pretty sure that you do, please, please, please visit freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. We take, of course, a PayPal, Visa, Interact, eCheck, electronic currencies, a variety of kinds. And we look forward to your help and support. It really, really means the world to us to help us bring more philosophy to the planet as a whole. So here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Well, up first is Armin. And Armin wrote in with a question that me just saying is going to get me in trouble. So (laughs) these are Armin's words. And this is the question. Is the word nigger really offensive? People say context matters. But the only context I've seen it used in is when the user is black. If it is offensive, why does the oppressed group use it so much? And that's from Armin. It's a fine question. Uh, Armin, do you want? Uh, yeah. And why? Okay, I guess I'm always I'm always curious, and this doesn't mean that it's not important, but I'm always curious as to why this uh, is important uh, is an important topic for you. Uh, a lot of stuff that is kind of minute to some people is really important to me. I just overanalyze a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't actually answer the <laughs> doesn't Sorry, answer the question I, I... though. Right. I mean, there's an infinite number of things that you could find interesting that other people don't that aren't this topic. So why this topic in particular? Uh, honestly, if uh, if you just said, OK, we're not doing this call and uh, and hung up, it, it wouldn't really change my day for better or worse. 
but uh, not answering the question. I I, I really don't. <laughs> not I, answering the question. I, I don't think there is an answer to the question. Some things just are. Wait, you have no because of all of the infinity of questions you could have brought to the table of this show. I assume that you listen to the show and you want to talk about this. And again, I'm not saying it's not an interesting question. I think it is. I'm just curious why it's interesting to you. Are you white? Uh, yes, I am. Okay, just worth checking because, you know, it's a racial term. And um, do you think it's an important question in the world? Uh, somewhat, Or yeah. is it more important for you? Because, uh, you know, if, yes, if, a guy says, if a guy says, I'm thinking of divorcing my wife, that's an important question for him, and it may be an important question to other people, but it's not exactly an important question in the world as a whole because it's not philosophical specifically, right? So what, is, is there any particular reason why you think this is of interest to you? Um, I guess I, uh, I do care about, about fairness is one word for it in, uh, in between races. And, uh, I, I think racism is an actual problem, but when people just call everything racism, I think it diminishes the, the severity of the problem. Okay. Okay. Um, well, uh, okay. So when we go through the question as a whole, Yes. Nigger is an offensive term. I think I can pretty much, I'm pretty much on firm ground, I think, when I say that. It's a highly offensive term because, of course, it refers to a very negative view of blacks in America that traditionally comes from, you know, a subjugated legal and uh, um, social state. So uh, it, is a, um, it is an offensive term, and it's a very offensive term. Is it more offensive than the term cracker? You know, which I guess would be the closest equivalent. It used to be honky, but I don't think that's used so much uh, anymore. But um, is it as offensive as the word uh, cracker, which, of course, I've been called countless times, uh, along with racist and all the usual stuff, right? Uh, it is, I think, because uh, whites in general had an elevated socioeconomic and legal status to blacks throughout the majority of American history, um, there's a case to be made that that's no longer the case, and there's a case to be made that the reverse is more the case with affirmative action and so on. But um, I think that it's fairly safe to say that there's not quite an equivalent term for uh, whites as there is for uh, blacks in this uh, context because of you know disparities in in uh, the way that the societies have developed and and the way that the law has developed and so on. So. Yes, I think so. The first point, it is an offensive term. Uh, the, the second point, or the second question, I suppose, is why do blacks use it? Uh, it it's more, the question I, I'd say is misphrased right now. Uh, it, it, it's not, my question personally isn't, is it an offensive, is it an offensive term? Because obviously, yes, it is. But uh, is it justified to be one? Is it justified to be an offensive term? Yeah. Well, I think I just gave you a brief argument as to why it is. Maybe you could, if I if I misstated something or got something wrong, I'm certainly happy to hear how that's not the case. But uh, I think I made a case for that. Do you do you not agree with the case? Well, uh, can I uh, can I uh, see if we both agree on something first? Yeah. Do you think uh, the variant of nigger nigga is a different word? What n i g g a? Yes. Oh, like uh, my nigger, you know, like yeah. Denzel Washington in his inimitably cool way says yes. in some movies and so on. Right. Yeah. Right. Do I think that that is uh, less of an offensive term? 
like a, a different word in in general. I think it's again, I, you know, I'm scarcely an expert on this, but my understanding is that it's more of a friendly, uh, convivial term. Okay, and see, I disagree there. Uh, if if uh, and, and I'm not saying this is all black people, uh, but it, when you think of a black person saying a word ending in er, they usually replace the er with an a. So it, it's not officer, it's officer. It's not uh, it's not like uh, plumber, it's plumber. So why why is it the same for every single word in the dictionary ending in er, but it's not the same for nigger? I, I honestly couldn't tell you other than language has its vagaries, right? Yeah. And yeah. a slightly modified word could be uh, something that is more friendly than the original. I mean, as to why, I, I have no idea other than language is funny. <laughs> funny that way. Lots of different things uh, that can, uh, uh, can occur. Now, as far as groups using within themselves a phrase that has been used from outside the group as a term of insult, as a, as a term of non-insult. It's a very convoluted way. So an in-group, so if, if an out-group attacks an in-group with a, a pejorative like nigger, then the in-group can choose to co-opt it, to, to adopt it, to take sort of, quote, the sting uh, out of it. And um, for, from that standpoint, that's one reason why it would be less offensive, of course, right? I mean, for a black person to call another black person a nigger doesn't bring all of the racial animus and slavery and Jim Crow and all of that. It just doesn't bring the same thing in. In the same way that if a gay man calls another gay man a fag, that's not quite the same, you know, as because there is just... Uh, when you're in that particular group for which the pejorative is applied universally, you can't. You, you simply are not going to have the same relationship to it when you're in that group. I mean, I've certainly heard uh, gay people refer to each other as fags, and I've certainly, you know, there's a, um, a sort of joke about women who have a gay friend uh, that they're they're fag hags, you know, and I've heard. Uh, you know, gay people say, "Oh, is your fag hag girlfriend coming over tonight?" or something like that, and. It's just kind of, it's kind of funny, uh, you know. It's not the way that I would particularly choose to talk, but um, it's uh, a way of owning the word and taking the power away from the out group's use of it as a pejorative. And see, the one problem I'd have with that is, uh, it, from that example, you would think context matters in the in, in like the sense of you using the word. If you're using it in a good way, like uh, a gay person calling another gay person a fag in a in a playful way, then you think it's it's not an offensive word. But if I were to go on TV and say, um, "Well, I think uh, I think faggots are in, are entitled to the same rights as normal people." Then I, I'd get a lot of flack. <laughs> that, would be a, that would be a pretty astounding statement to make. But all right. But look, I mean, the, first of all, the word itself, no word itself can be offensive. Correct, yeah. Right. Pe people are offensive. Words are not. And we simply know that because anybody who stud studied a foreign language, uh, Mike, if you want to look up any of these, they could be kind of fun. But anybody who, wants to, who studies a foreign language knows that there are words in that other language that are perfectly innocuous, that are shockingly rude in your language, right? So in another language, it may refer to a tree, and in your language, it may refer to something pretty, 
pretty heinous, right? Are, are you Shiitake talking about, mushroom? But anyway, are, are you talking sorry? about like uh, like uh, the context the word is used in in like society, like where uh, where like no, I'm not. Some language... okay, hang on, hang on, no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I guess I didn't ahead. quite uh, understand your your uh, your your point there. Okay, when I said when I said the word tabernak, does this make your hair stand on end? Uh, no. No. Okay. Well, if you're in Quebec, Canada, that is an unholy cuss word. So, so it doesn't offend you because you're like, I don't know, is that some sort of Mormon choir? I don't know, right? Yeah. I mean, so, but, but in, in Quebec, it's, it's a hideous and heinous curse word. Okay. So you're like saying... close to, you know, close to MF in, in, in English. And so the, the word itself is not offensive, but only people can be offensive. And uh, it's all about the tonality, the, the, um, uh, the inflection, the level of emotional oomph behind it. And yes, if you're not part of the in-group that the pejorative applies to, you're automatically suspect in your use of it. This is why a black man calling another black man my nigger is not subject to the same level of outrage as, I don't know... Uh, <laughs> Bull Connor or, you know, some, some fat southern sheriff using that, right? Yeah. But uh, to that, I'd also like to add that uh, it, it's something that's only seen in the, uh, in the black community. Uh, in, in most cases, you don't see Mexicans calling each other wetbacks. You don't see Asians calling each other chinks. Uh, you don't see whites calling each other crackers unless it's in a, in, in a satirical tone. And it, it, like only well, blacks. okay, but but there's another, but the, no, but so for instance, um, probably the closest equivalent to cracker in English is white trash. Now, my understanding, and again, please forgive my non-expertise in this, but this is just my particular thoughts on the subject. Within the black community, and this goes back to an old Chris Rock bit from I don't know a decade or more ago. But within the black community, there are nice, honorable, decent blacks. And this is the view from within the black community. And then there are the black equivalent of what white people would call white trash. And the word nigger is sometimes used within the black community to refer to the black equivalent of white trash. And so, of course, <laughs> it's, it's really a not great temptation within the white community to look at the black community as just one big blob, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Blacks in America experience this. It's like, no, they don't. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Mike Brown's upbringing and experience was markedly different from, say, Tom Sowell's or yeah. Walter Williams or, you know, any of the other fantastic and, and great black intellectuals or um, um, Marcus Garvey or, um, I mean, just Booker T, right? I mean... So saying there's a black experience in America is false, uh, is false. I mean, there's uh, e even Malcolm X would talk about this. He would say, well, there are the house slaves and there are the field slaves. And the house slaves have a very different relationship because they lived in the house and they lived among white people and they ate at the white man's table or at least nearby. They were involved in the white man's dramas and they, you know, they helped raise the white man's children. So they had a very different experience of slavery than the field hands who slept out in sheds and had very little interaction. And their primary interaction with the white man was not his cute, cuddly children crawling on their lap to be told a story 
or sung a spiritual, to use a cliche, the field slave's experience of the white man was the overseer with a whip. <laughs> so, so even, and that's just one of, of many divisions. So even, I mean, this is something that Malcolm X talked about at quite, quite a bit of length. And so from that standpoint, the idea that there is a black experience or there's one big blob called the black experience, it's just not, it's not the case. And there, are, of course, uh, there's a strong history, at least there used to be up until the 1960s, there's a strong history of um, black uh, intellectuals, very powerful intellectual black movement saying, do not accept the white man's charity. The white man's charity is put there to make the white man superior, to keep you dependent on the white man, to keep you down. And if you take the white man's charity, the black family will be destroyed. The charity is the way to emasculate the black male because the white man's charity will in general be given to the black woman making the black man irrelevant causing single motherhood I mean there was a, a big tradition of, of course you don't you don't hear that much <laughs> about this anymore which is really tragic but there are of course still a lot of very vocal very powerful very intelligent and incredibly I mean just great writers in the black community who were talking about the disaster of the welfare state, that the welfare state among blacks has done, as Tom Sowell points out, he said uh, the welfare state has done to blacks what even slavery couldn't do, which is to destroy the black family. And this was a tradition that went back to, the, at least to my, again, somewhat limited knowledge, but to, to the late 19th century, there was a very strong black movement that said, you know, we, we need independence, we need to um, be our own entrepreneurs, we need to not, I mean, some of them didn't even want to take loans from white banks, you know, we need to show the white people we don't need them, uh, anytime we, we fall into the white man's dependence, uh, disaster follows. And uh, that was a very vocal and powerful part of the black uh, movement, much more vocal and powerful than it is now, after the fact of the welfare state and all that. And um, so the, the field hands and, and uh, house slaves and uh, anti-welfare and pro-welfare uh, within the reparations, reparations for slavery within the black community is, or certainly was in the past, maybe less now, a hotly debated topic. And some people say, yes, well, you know, the wealth of, the wealth of white America was accumulated on the backs of slaves and they, they, they owe us, they owe us. Other people say, that would be a disaster. Everyone's dead. And how on earth, you'd have to run DNA tests to figure out who might even possibly be a slave. And lots of people would fake it. I got a whole podcast sitting in the archive about all of this. It's yet to be released. But the, whether the question of, of reparations, the question within the, within the black intellectuals and, and the black community as a whole, I'm sorry, I don't mean to say that you know, it's only black intellectuals who are discussing these things. These are very hot topics in the black community as a whole. You know, the big question in the black community, what the hell is wrong with our young men, is hotly debated. And some people, of course, say, well, it's a legacy of racism. And some people say, well, it's lack of educational opportunities. Other people say that it's poverty. And other people, again, to tip, uh, tip my hat to Tom Sowell, Dr. Sowell, to be, to be precise, uh, say, no, it's, it's toxic African-American culture that is causing the, the horrors of black youths. And uh, 
other people in the black community say, well, white racism is really bad and it's uncaused. You know, whites are just uh, white devils and racists and so on. Other people within the black community say, well, no, given the black crime rates, whites have, have good reason to be feared, right? Was it Jesse Jackson who said some, some years back, he said after 20 years of working on equal rights and race relations, it breaks my heart. I'm walking down a street at night. I turn around and I'm relieved to see white people, not black people. So even the causes of the staggering levels of black violence and criminality in the United States are hotly debated within the black community. And some people say, well, you just got to marry your, the moms of your kids. If you married the moms of your kids, then black crime rates would fall significantly. And some people even argue that if black men married black women before they had kids, then the huge disparity between white and black crime would virtually disappear. So I just, you know, it's a, it's a complex ecosystem of wildly divergent and often opposing thoughts. And uh, so uh, within the black community, they sometimes use the word nigger to refer to trashy blacks that would be the equivalent of white trash. Um, and, and again, I'm not going to put Chris Rock as some sort of sociologist, but it was a very famous bit. Mike, we have some rude words in other, uh, in other, other languages? We do, and uh, <laughs> I'll leave it up to you to try to pronounce them, if you feel so inclined. Oh, really? <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. So, I, I, the word that I really have trouble with, I mean, is the see you next Tuesday word, C-U-N-T. Okay. And apparently, and I, I, <laughs> I hesitate to say this because we have a fair number of kangaroo fans in Australia, but uh, the see you next Tuesday word is uh, apparently a greeting in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they all meet on Tuesdays. Is that right? Yeah. Tuesday's a big... Not quite. Uh, it's terribly offensive in the U.S. It's somewhat neutral in the U.K. Um, Japanese, busu, extremely ugly girl. What said I saw? I saw a bumper sticker today. Uh, beer, helping ugly people have sex since 1837. <laughs> or beer, because your friends really aren't that interesting. Or you're not drinking alone if your kids are actually in the house. Anyway. So, uh, or uh, Kintama, golden balls. Uh, Kisama, lord of the donkeys. Whoa, I'm only going to imagine what, what that is. They call him Junior Tripod. Urasai Gakya, shut up, brat. Pai Pai, bests and nipples. And uh, in Russian, Saibal, you have bored me a lot. Well, actually, that's just true in Russia as a whole because the winter's pretty long. Korovi, wait, Korovi Koi, your mother sucks cow dicks. Uh, I'm not even going to try some of these ones, but apparently in Russia it's very hard to say I have a big yellow dick. I've got to think that pretty much you'd say that at the doctor's, <laughs> because I'm pretty sure I haven't seen a huge number of dicks in my life, but I do not remember that being a very healthy color. Um, wait, let me try it, let me try it. Ya imeyu ochen balshoi jolti hoi. Tebya ne ibut, tine padmakabil. Mind your own fucking business. Yob tvoi mat. That would be MF. Uh, so, I actually had a, a roommate once who uh, 
who claimed to, and he ran me through, and I think it was true, had learned, in, in 22 languages, he had learned the phrase to say in a bar, um, I will have a beer, my friend will pay. Um, <laughs> okay, Charles Barkley. We as black people, we are never going to be successful. Not because of you white people, but because of other black people. It's a dirty, dark secret. You know, when there are young black kids doing well in school, the loser kids tell them, oh, you're acting white. For some reason, we are brainwashed to think that if you're not a thug or an idiot, you're not black enough. And um, the German just, no. <laughs> All right. Okay. Arschgeschicht. Arschface. Schwarzlutscher. Actually, that one I can do even with. Schwarzlutscher. Cocksucker. So anyway, so these words offensive. If you know German, otherwise they just make Polish people wet themselves. So yeah, sorry for a fairly long answer to that. But, um, you know, black people use it sometimes in terms of uh, my friends or sometimes. And I don't think it's a very classy thing to do. Um. And, uh, you know, gay people use faggot sometimes and black people use nigger sometimes in a wide variety of contexts. And I, I don't think that it's, uh, um, I, I don't think, I just, I can't imagine uh, Tom Sowell sidling up to Denzel Washington saying, Denzi, my nigger. <laughs> I just <laughs> can't see it. So um, does that, does that help at all? Uh, somewhat, but, uh, I, there's a, there's a big part of the question that I still have, uh, unanswered here. Um, I, I have no problem with accepting that, uh, the word nigger is offensive, but the context obviously does matter. Uh, and I think, I don't think I should be forbidden to use it or if I, uh, or if I just want to use like a, a, uh, a joke, I, I shouldn't have to look behind my, uh, behind both shoulders before actually saying it. Uh, if, if I'm using it in... Wait, you want to use the word... Wait, hang on, hang on. You want to use the word nigger in the joke? Oh, well, yeah, well, there's... Like, yeah, there, there, are, there are jokes. See, I, I can't... I, I gotta tell you, man. I gotta tell you. I can't, for the life of me, figure out the cost-benefit of that weighing in your favor as a white person ever. Like, there's no amount of laughter that would be big enough or people who I think would be laughing in a decent way or people I'd like to be around who laughed at a joke containing the word nigger, I just can't possibly see what cost-benefit there is in that. Uh, how could that possibly be a win for you? Uh, what do you mean, uh, how could that be a win? Using a, using a joke with the word nigger in it. Uh, well, I, it, would, it would get laughs. That's, uh, that's one thing. But it, it's not even that, uh, that it's like a problem. It's, it's more the principle that just because I'm white, I can't use the word. That's, that's what I, uh, I take oh, issue no, with. Oh, no, you can use the word. Look, I, I can you use can do it, whatever you want. You can use the word. It's just there may be consequences. Yeah. And I, I think those consequences would be pretty negative. And I, I can't really quite disagree with those negative consequences. Because if you kind of think it's really funny to use a joke with the word nigger in it, I've got to imagine that, that the negative consequences you might accrue would be, you know, pretty fair. Like, there's better ways to... <laughs> so <laughs> Just look at Michael Richards. There's better ways to make a joke, right? So would you carry that over to, uh, to all sorts of offensive jokes? Well, sure. I mean... I, <laughs> I mean, why would you want to tell a joke using the word faggot or nigger or I don't even know what else? It, it doesn't even or, have to be a, or, It doesn't even have to be uh, condensed into words. It can just be 
uh, offensive offensive jokes themselves. Like uh, Daniel Tosh got a lot of flack for his uh, his uh, his his rape joke, and it, it, like at what at some point, I I think people should understand that a joke is a joke, and no one's uh, no one's trying to to offend people in in a meaningful way with their jokes. They're just trying to get laughs. How do you know? How do you know that people are just trying to get laughs? Uh, I guess you maybe, don't. Maybe there, maybe there, uh, maybe there is, is deep seated racism or, or anti female thoughts or misogyny or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Now, to be fair, I do think that, you know, the, 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 what Jerry Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Chris Rock have all complained about, they don't want to do college campuses anymore because college students are just so hypersensitive, right? Yeah. And uh, it's so politically correct that, you know, you, you just can't make a joke because everyone just tightens up, right? Yeah. And so I get that. I mean, but so the joke that Jerry Seinfeld apparently got in trouble for was he's saying, you know, it's pretty tough to look manly or something like that when you're, you know, scrolling through your contacts on your phone like a gay French king. I think that's a little funny. I mean, I have a soft spot for Jerry Seinfeld. I think he's just pretty, pretty funny as a whole. But... um that's not exactly offensive, and that's not anti-gay or anything like that. And, um, uh, you know, but, oh, the PC police uh, are, are all about that uh, stuff and causing even problems and all that. So, yeah, it can go too far, but he's not using any offensive words. I can't for the life of me imagine a white person telling a joke with the word nigger in it and it being worth it. Uh. I, I do find it kind of hard to find to figure out a joke, but I, I think if you give me a few days, I could figure one out. But uh, no, but why would problem. you? Why would you want to bother? So there's so many great jokes in the world. Why would you need to use a joke containing a word that's very volatile? Well, you can say that for anything. Why would you? Uh, why would you want to make a joke about cripples? Why would you want to make a joke about uh, about white people? Why would you want to make a joke about your weird neighbor? There's so many other things that wouldn't offend it. No, no, no. But you can. I don't know about I don't know why I don't know about cripples, but I mean in terms of white people, your weird neighbor, you could do all of those without using very volatile language. And again, I'm, look, don't get me wrong, I'm no stranger to controversy, and I, I don't mind shaking the trees a little bit because I think people get these days are just getting too rigid, and, and everybody's worrying too much about the effects of language. So I, you're 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 preaching to the choir a little bit here, but um, I just I don't see the cost benefit. I mean. Ethical issues aside, right? I, how, how could this be a win? Um, well, can I give you a, a real example that I, I run, uh, that I've run into in my actual life? You sure? Um, in uh, I forget which grade it was, but in school we read books from uh, from the era of slavery, and they do use the word nigger pretty extensively. And when you're called on to read. It's it's somewhat of a moral quandary if if you have a if you have a black student in your classroom whether you as a white person so, should say the word that's written on the page so it, you're you're not implying anything but no, that's, by but it. But that's easy enough. But no, hang on, hang on. But that's easy enough to solve. How would you solve? And that? and it comes from just treating the black person like a human being. Yes. And the way you solve that is you you know let's say you're reading. Um, Joseph Conrad's The Nigger of the Narcissus or whatever it is. Or, or maybe you're reading Huck Finn, which has the word nigger in it. Yeah. So you say, you turn to the black guy and you say, listen, man, we both know what's coming. Right? There's, there's the N-word here. Do you want me to read it or do you want me to skip it? I mean, because, you know, how are you feeling about it, right? 
And my guess is that nine times out of ten or nine times out of a hundred, the guy will say, well, that's what's written, so read it, right? Yeah. I'm not made of glass, right? Now, if it is something that's really upsetting to him, you can have a conversation about it. Say, oh, well, well tell me more. You know, tell me what your thoughts are. But you just you, you deal with it as a communication issue between two reasonable and intelligent people. Mm. And that obviously gets more And also, that's not, that's not reading a joke, right? That's not, that's not telling a joke where it's optional. Yeah, well, that's the joke was just, the script, uh, just so one so. example. It, the, right. the, the real but point he, I'm trying to get another at, one. I mean, uh, yeah. the real point I'm trying to get at is the, is the fear behind it. I don't think that uh, white people should be instilled with the fear of using the word in any context, whether it be historical or comical. Oh, and it's, it's by far the least, but I don't think that's a big problem, right? Um, th- there's, there's another big problem when it comes to racism that I'm going to address. Sorry, this is a like it or not situation. <laughs> I hope you won't mind. Yeah, too go much. ahead. No, the the new nigger is racist. What do you mean by that? Right, because the word racist is something that is tossed around so casually and so aggressively, and those two should never ever be co-joined: casual and aggression. Mm. That's sociopathic. But the word racist is tossed around. So liberally, oh, and I mean that in the double meaning of the word, yes, I do, that uh, I find that is the most offensive racial term that is around these days, and it's everywhere. And it is much more damaging to any honest conversation about racist than the word nigger. The word racist is the radioactive word. That is the word that is destroying any semblance of having an honest conversation about race. Because the invitation to have an honest conversation about race means that you can't bring up facts that people don't like, liberals don't like. And that is, uh, that is bullshit. I mean, I, on this show, I've tried to have a meaningful conversation about race, had lots of black callers, been great to chat with them, bring up facts, Apparently, facts are racist. <laughs> Bring up perspectives. Apparently, perspectives backed up by data, also racist. Right, so, so, and this is why, you know, occasionally I'll see a comment. I don't watch comments much, but occasionally I'll see a comment. I get called a racist for pointing out facts from well-respected data sources. The massive prevalence of black crime. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> Quick question. Were there more whites who owned slaves or more blacks who are criminals? Uh, hmm. a, a narrow margin, but I'd say the blacks. It's not that narrow. Yeah. In some places, you know, in Washington, D.C., in Washington, D.C., a black man is 53 times more likely to end up in prison than a white man. That ain't all racism. So these, this is an honest conversation about race. Yeah. White people have done some bad things. Black people have done some bad things. Ask, ask the neighbors of Japan whether there's any Japanese privilege or colonialism or general rape. Nanking. Yes, they've done some pretty horrible goddamn things too, as has every other culture and race throughout human history. But uh, yeah, blacks are doing some pretty terrible stuff. <laughs> Again, you know, it's still a minority, but it's a statistically significant minority compared to Everyone says, uh, oh, yeah, America is such a violent country. No, it's really not. The blacks are violent. Because if you just look at white crime statistics, 
their equivalent to Belgium. <laughs> America would be as peaceful as Belgium. So, yes, there is a problem with violence within the black community. And I think that's quite significant because when people say, I'm scared of blacks, well, of course you shouldn't be scared of all blacks. You know, meet Morgan Freeman at a, uh, at a dinner party. You know, you're pretty, pretty certain to end up walking out of there with your wallet still in your pants. Yeah. It's not a big problem, right? But, um, but when people say, as, as Jesse Jackson said, he said, I'm scared of blacks. I mean, boy, you think white people are scared of blacks. Try talking, to, try talking to blacks about what it's like living in a black neighborhood. They're terrified. And rightly so. Because the vast majority of the considerable homicides committed by black people are against black people. Mm. And so we can't untangle questions of racism until the races act the same. Right? So if the races act the same then we can start to talk about racism. Look, if you're walking down a dark alley and you turn around because you hear footsteps behind you, pretty light footsteps, you turn around and you see footsteps behind you and you see two elderly Asian women fiddling with their giant cameras, I guarantee you that if you say, I feared for my life, that you have an irrational fear. Yeah. Because demographically, they're not going to be the people who you're going to have much trouble with. And uh, so, until the races act the same, it's really, really hard to talk about racism without pointing out the fact that the races act differently. In the 1970s, somebody collected statistics on almost 50,000 murders and non-negligent homicides. Almost 50,000 murders and non-negligent homicides. Let me ask you a question, my friend. Of those nearly 50,000 deaths, how many were caused by Japanese Americans? Uh, where were these deaths taken from? Oh, I think it was on the West Coast. Uh, in America? Yeah. Uh, very few. A percentage, maybe. Like 1%? Yeah. Less, maybe. Like 500? Uh, yeah, something like that. You would be off by almost, well, over 100 times. Of the nearly 50,000 murders that occurred and non-negligent homicides that occurred in this time period, a grand total of four. Four. Were committed by Japanese Americans. I was thinking a low number. That's low, would you agree? Yeah, very. Right. Now... That's not the numbers for blacks. Very high. Yeah. I mean, we all know the stats. Mm -hmm. And the population young black does males, come into, uh, into yeah, the question. Young black males, 2 to 3% of the population, responsible for more than 50% of the homicides. Yeah. So until the races act the same, not identically, but the same. In other words, white people in Belgium commit about the same number of crimes as white people in America. So there's some similarity there. White people throughout Europe pretty much commit the same amount of crimes as white people throughout the world. And in almost all black countries, at least, well, all the ones that I've studied, and again, not exactly uh, cornered the market on specialty in this area, but the black countries have staggeringly high crime rates. Now, of course, people immediately start rushing to white racism. I submit that is a racist perspective. 
Because the moment that an entire community, an entire group, an entire ethnicity all around the world can blame all of their dysfunctions on people, on other people, you've just completely disempowered them. And until blacks stop committing so many crimes, it's going to be kind of tough for non-blacks to go, great, <laughs> lots of blacks around, how wonderful. You know, it's, it's not right, it's not fair in some ways, because of course the majority of blacks are law-abiding, wonderful, nice people and all that, but still the numbers are the numbers. Yeah. And until, until black kids start doing better in school, Right? I mean, in, in Florida, they've had to change the grades for black students because they're doing so badly. Mm. And so when black kids who are disproportionately violent and don't do well in school start coming to people's schools, that's a big... You know, and then people say, I'm not happy with this situation. Well, the moment somebody just screams racism, they're not even bothering to think. I was reading this um, report, I think it was in New York, where uh, there were a bunch of rich liberals, all voted Democrat as long as time has existed, a bunch of rich white liberals, and they, the, the school a couple of blocks over, which was a roughneck, roughneck low-income, welfare mom, black kids school, was running out of space, so they started busing the black kids into the white liberal school. Do you know what the white liberals did? Well, they do. Tried to block it every means, every means possible. Threatened to pull their kids out of school. Yeah. And people are like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Interview the reporters who go and talk to them. Well, you're liberals. What are you, what are you doing? He's like, it's complicated, particularly when it's your own children. Mm. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to the integration. Yeah that everyone else has had to deal with, right? It's a challenge. Hey, if, you know, nobody sits there and says, oh no, the Chinese mathletes are coming to my school. Actually, they probably do because it makes the white kids look bad. <laughs> I don't know. Right? But, but no, nobody sits there and says, oh no, <laughs> you know, a Japanese family has moved in down the street, right? There go my property. Like, the, people don't, so, you know, the, the fact is that the races act differently. Ethnicities act differently. And that results in different opinions of the races. And for, to just say, well, that's all racism, I agree with you. If somebody has a negative view of an ethnicity when that ethnicity acts the same as everyone else or better, well, that's racism or potentially racism for sure. Mm -hmm. But until we can close the gap in achievement and until we can close the, the gap in crime levels, until we can close the gap, the gap in single parenthood, until these things get closed off, closed down, once the races start acting the same or similar, then we can start talking about racism. But right now, everybody who screams racism is completely blowing over the fact that the races act differently. I wish they didn't. <laughs> I really do. Because if the races act the same, we'd be, it'd be very easy to spot the out-and-out -out racists. And uh, to add on to that do you know, point... Do you, know, do you know the bank that turns away the most black applicants? It's a black-owned bank. The, the, the most... The, the, 
the whole one of the housing crash, one of the arguments of why the housing crash occurred, right, is because the government forced banks to give loans to minorities who could squeeze themselves in if they self-reported their income and if interest rates stayed really low. And then when they didn't, anyway, so. But uh, the, the methodology of the study all turned out to be complete nonsense. Uh, and the, the banks were not denying loans to qualified minority applicants or anything like that. But um, what's interesting is that the bank with the highest rate of rejection for black applicants was a black bank. And you see, one of the great things about being black in America is that you can treat black people as human beings without being called racist. You know, I mean, Absolutely, yeah. if, if blacks have disproportionately lower income and disproportionately shorter work histories, then guess what? They're going to get fewer loans. If banks are so racist, how come just about every Japanese-American family that applies gets a loan? So, but you can go and say, look, I'm saying no to you. It's not because you're black, it's because you're poor. Or because you have an unstable work history. Or because you can't verify your income. Because you don't have any assets. People say, ah, yes, well, you see, it's circular. Because they don't have any assets, and therefore they can't get loans, and therefore they can't grow their assets. That's bullshit. Wave upon wave upon wave of Jewish and European and Chinese and Japanese and Eastern European and Russian immigrants came crashing onto the shores of North America for hundreds of years with no assets. Ah, but they never faced any racism. Sure they did. Sure they did. And again, if you want to start screaming racism at people, then you have to prove that the races act the same and therefore all disparities come from racism, you can make the case that if blacks end up as peaceful as whites and whites still don't like blacks, okay, let's start talking racism. But what we need to do is instead of nagging white people to stop thinking negatively about black people, how about nagging black people to have intact families? <laughs> you know, that would be really, really helpful. I mean, President Obama has had a bully pulpit going on seven years now. Has he ever once brought up the topic of single motherhood in the black community and its incredibly negative effects on young black men in particular. Why no? Why no? Because the big fucking problem in America is the Confederate flag. Yeah. So no, I, I find that the use of the word racism is to me the only and most vivid example of racism out there. It's the use of the word racism. That's why when people accuse me of being racist and can't cite any specific evidence, and I'm not racist. I'm data-driven because I like facts. I like to base my perspectives on a little thing we call reality. I think that the world is actually a pretty fair place. And the communities where the family unit is the strongest, they tend to make the most money. Uh, among uh, Asians and uh, slants, not dots <laughs> for my British friends, but among Asians, uh, very cohesive, strong communities and families, they make it out like bandits in white-run capitalism. Right? I mean, they're, they're much higher per capita income than whites. So, I think that 
the problem, I, I did a speech years and years ago, I know, 2008. By God, that's a lot of years ago now. It's always so much. So coming on six or seven years ago in the New Hampshire Forum where I said that it's the evil that is hidden that is the most dangerous. The evil that everyone sees, they reject, right? It's like your body, if it sees an infection and goes for the infection, that's great. If it doesn't go for the infection, you have a problem because it doesn't recognize it as a danger. Or if it attacks the wrong infection, in other words, it's not an infection, then you have an allergy which can kill you, right? And racism. If a white person comes out and says some horrible thing about blacks, some obviously offensive thing, right? I think Michael Richards is kind of in that category with his stand-up routine and all that. Well, yeah, he's ostracized. His, his career is over. I don't have any particularly strong disagreements with that because I don't want someone like out there, like that out there. I mean, I wouldn't ban anyone. I wouldn't make laws against anything. But yeah, that wouldn't be where my entertainment dollar would go, to say the least. So the racism that everyone thinks is out there is not. You know, like I did a, a show, I don't know, 8 or 10, 12 months ago, where I said, look, I've never met a white racist. And it's true. Yeah, I've, I've read things online from people who claim to be white, who say racist things. Yeah, okay, for sure. But I've never met. I didn't, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying I've never met mm. them. And, you know, just, just try holding a Klan rally in Manhattan, right? I mean, you're not going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. And so white racism is something that everyone has been so hypersensitized to that it's really not that much of an issue because there really aren't a lot of people out there <laughs> touting god-awful white supremacist views or anything like that. It's just, it's just not a big thing in society, which is why there are all of these witch hunts over... Fucking Rick Perry used to have a Niggerland ranch, like, years in his family. Like, that's the point. Like, oh, my God, are we chasing down, like, ancient rock writings? What are we, fucking... Gandalf now? Just be <laughs> that was the Niggerhead. Name. There you go. Niggerhead, right? Or <laughs> you can't use the word niggardly <laughs> to mean stingy, right? Yeah. So, like, it's become that ridiculous. So, white racism, in terms of its public level of acceptance, it's a done deal and it's been done for decades. I swear to God, the only racism that I see now out there is people screaming racism almost exclusively at white people. That is the only verifiable racism that's out there, and people don't even see that it's racist. If you accuse someone of racism without clear evidence, where someone is making a statement about another race that is negative, that is not backed up by any data, that is universalized, that is consistent, not something that just, you know, whatever, right? in a heat of anger, you know, whatever. But somebody who, like, consistently makes negative generalizations unsupported by any data about some... Okay, fine, then you found yourself an honest-to-God racist. Good job. <laughs> you have found the modern unicorn. But just go online. I mean, just look through my videos. The number of times that the word racist gets hurled around, man... You know, if you're really concerned about racism and you're throwing the word racist at people because they're bringing up uncomfortable facts, guess what, Buster? You're the racist. 
you're the racist. Because calling someone a racist without evidence makes you the racist. I think uh, I, I wouldn't call it racist. I would call it more, uh, more dishonest. Whenever I've run into people who use the, the term racist really, uh, really lightly in, uh, in conversation, they usually, it's usually because you present a fact that, obviously, since it's a fact, you can't prove no. wrong. No, it's racist. Because they're only saying racist because it's a white person. That's why it's racist. Well, uh, I... When Tom Sowell says black crime levels are horrendous, nobody calls him a racist. When Jesse Jackson says, I'm terrified of young black men, nobody calls him a racist. It's only because a white person is saying it that's why it's racist, because it's a one-size-fits-all one pejorative that only applies to white people. That's what makes it racist. Uh, okay, yeah, I, I do see what you're saying there. I, I, I do agree in that case. But uh, to add on that... If a statement made by a black person is not racist, but becomes racist when made by a white person, whoever calls that white person racist is the only verified racist in the whole interaction. Yeah, I, I, because they are having a different negative standard only for white people. That's the very definition of racism. Mm. I have a negative pejorative that only applies to white people. That is the very definition of racism. That's why I'm saying the people who say racism, racism, racism only against white people, they're the only verified and invisible racist left on the goddamn planet, as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and to add to that, um, I, I think it's more of a dishonest point because there, no one's trying to actually call you a racist. What they're doing is trying to ignore your points by calling your points racist. There's no way to prove the no, facts wrong. They're, no, no, they're, tr they're trying to shut me up. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. There's no way to uh, to prove the facts wrong, but to prove the facts racist and get some uh, some some sympathy would uh, would help your argument out. I don't know what you're saying. I'm just telling you they're racists. I can know what you're saying. That the, that's the only racism that I see. And and you know, what about you know? Has anyone ever? Do you ever see these articles that say, "Gosh, I wonder how white people feel being called racists all the time." The moment that they don't immediately kowtow to the dominant PC narrative and somehow claim to respect blacks by saying that they're all endless victims of centuries-old racism and slavery and Jim Crow and blah, 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 right? The moment a white person steps out of line and says, I, I have more respect for blacks than to portray them as victims, there's things that the black people can do, you know, maybe, I don't know how slavery 150 years ago is causing you to hit your children a lot more. I don't know how slavery is causing you all to not get married. Mm -hmm. People say, ah, oh, well, you know, but slavery destroyed the black family. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Black slaves, when freed, used to cross hundreds or even thousands of miles to go and find their wives and children. It was a heroic migration of infinite masculine power and devotion. They would travel heartbreakingly, staggeringly, 
nearly infinite, foot-bleedingly, throat-parching distances to find their wives and children and reunite with them. Now some wannabe rapper can't even pull himself away from Judge Judy to go visit his kid three doors down. Yeah, yeah. And the black family was way stronger in the 1920s. Ooh, but are you going to argue that there was less racism in the 1920s? Think you're going to have a tough time with that, my friend. Not you. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And so when someone says, and Shelby Steele writes about this very eloquently, jaw-droppingly great writer, but when someone says, hey, I I, I don't think that blame is going to (laughs) solve your problems. I don't think blame is going to solve your problems. Like if you met someone who said, I'm scared of blacks, and said it's because they commit so much crime relative to whites, people would say, that's no excuse, or that's a lie, or you're a racist, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So white people don't get to blame their perspectives on even somewhat verifiable facts. So white people don't get the excuse, and neither do Asians. They don't get the excuse of blaming other people for their perspectives. Even though you could argue that in contemporary American and British and Canadian society, ridiculously high levels of black crime might be a little bit more relevant to the current social discourse than slavery from 150 years ago. Maybe. Might just have a little bit more effect on people's perspectives. So, and that's what I mean. The moment you go to black people and you say, oh, but slavery, oh, but Jim Crow, oh, it's not your fault. That's racist. Yeah. Unless you're going to go to everyone and say, oh, well, if you're scared of blacks, well, you know, there is a fair amount of crime in the black community, so you can be excused for that. That's not your fault. Nope. You see, higher standards for whites. Lowest standards for blacks. Blacks can blame things on slavery. Whites can't blame any anxiety about blacks on high levels of black crime. Slavery 150 years ago, high levels of black crime in the here and now. Very high standards for whites. Very low standards for blacks. That's racist. And very anti-black. I think that the healthiest thing would be... Look. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay, look. We've tried the white guilt thing for, I don't know, do you want to start with Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin? Do you want to start with, um, do you want to start with, with a variety of black movements in the late 19th, early 20th century around empowerment? Do you want to, I mean, do you want to start with To Kill a Mockingbird? Do you want to, do you want to start with the 60s? Do you want to? Where do you want to start? But we've given it a good old college try, right? Yeah. Suffice it to say, it's, it's been working. tried. Yeah. And I think that by far, the greatest and healthiest thing that we can all do for relations between the races is for white people to stop feeling guilty and stop paying, and call people out on their racism. I was raised to treat blacks as equals. I had black friends throughout my youth. 
whose company I really enjoyed. And whose culture is, to be fair, my one Jamaican friend, yeah, that was a bit of an aggressive single mom culture. And that's coming for me. <laughs> so when I say it's pretty aggressive, yeah, I think that there were some dysfunctions. Most popular guy in my high school was a black guy. Great guy. So my approach in a nutshell is I don't care that you're black. I don't. Isn't that what we want? A colorblind society? Isn't that what Martin Luther King Jr. so much wanted and cried out for and bled and died for? Judge not. I, I, I want a world where a man is judged not by the color of his skin, but the content of his character. Absolutely. I don't care yeah. that you're black. I don't care that you're Chinese. I don't care that you're Native American or Native... Can I don't care. I don't care. You are, to me, moving muscle in different upholstery. Yeah. I don't mean <laughs> right. to, uh, to spark that's, a whole... That's my thing. And what that means is that if I saw... Like, if I take the color out of the equation, I take the black part out of the equation, and I say, okay, what if these were all white people committing staggeringly disproportionate amounts of crime and wildly disproportionately reliant on welfare. Yes, it's true in America more white people are on welfare than black people, but there are quite a few more white people than black people. And what if there, so there was a white group that was pretty violent in a lot of ways, uh, really, you know, three-quarters of them growing up without fathers, heavily overrepresented, in the uh, prisons and criminal justice system. If that was a group of white people, what would you say to them? Um, Forget that they were black. Yeah. What would you say to them if they were just... It doesn't matter whether they're white or not. Just if, there was no, if we were truly colorblind, if it didn't matter at all that they were black, what would you say to that group of people? I'd, I'd say they did... Uh they did things in their life to bring them there and they're the only ones to blame. Yeah. Something on the lines of stop doing stupid shit. Yeah. Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. Stop doing stupid shit. Shape up. Read books. Get educated. Finish high school. Get a job. Keep a job for at least a year. And don't have children before you got married. Yeah, yeah. That's the rest because if you do all of that, it's virtually certain you're going to end up in the middle class. Finish high school, get a job, keep it for a year, don't have children out of wedlock. You do that, home run, baby. Middle class, all the way. Absolutely. And yeah. I'd say that. And I'd say stop doing stupid shit. Stop having a culture worships giant clocks and big asses. Stop it. Just don't do it. You just have to stop. I'm sorry. Your culture is not helping you. It's barely a culture. It's a culture like mold is a culture. And if, so if, you know, and, and this is the frustration. I want to speak for non-blacks, but the frustration is we want a colorblind community. Oh, really? Okay, so if, if I saw this dysfunctional group of whites, whites, I'd tell them to shape up, stop doing stupid shit, and I'd tell them the facts about their community. Maybe they weren't aware of it. Maybe they didn't know how destructive single motherhood was. But I'd say, man, you people are doing some stupid shit. Stop it. 
<gasps> you can't say that. Oh, okay. So we're back to being a very fucking color-focused society, and now I can't be as if I was in a colorblind society. Oh, you're a racist. <laughs> okay. Well, then I give up. And that's the point, right? Yeah. The point is just to make you give up. You can't win. I can't talk about facts. I can't assign responsibility. I can't criticize. So what, what do I just stand here, fucking stammer, apologize, and fire a cannon full of money at a problem where more money just makes it worse? Oh, great. <laughs> so I'm supposed to live in a hyper-race-conscious society where all non-blacks are just supposed to shut up and pay up. It's funny you say that. That's called a shit. It's funny you say that as it's funny you say that as a joke, but that's actually what's happening in cases of uh, affirmative action. It's where you're making white people lose jobs that they're qualified for for less qualified uh, minorities. Yeah, I mean, okay, so we're supposed to live in a colorblind society, but blacks are supposed to get legal advantages over everyone else. And, boy, if you think they get legal advantages over whites, just talk to some Asians about how much they enjoy having their SAT scores normalized down and blacks normalized up. Mm -hmm. They're currently engaged in a lawsuit out in California, I think, uh, where they're saying this is uh, horrible, right? You have to score, like, ridiculously higher as an Asian person to get the same mark as a black person. And I had a... Because reality really cares about SAT scores, right? So it's like, okay, well then, uh, how the fuck are we supposed to treat the races as equal when we have legal requirements to treat them as different? In Florida, they're normally normalizing up the scores of black kids in schools. So are they, are they equal or not? You can't win? Well, of course you can, just by telling the truth. But um, yeah, it's, it's not working. I mean, come on. We we all we all know that it's not. Yeah, right. I had a friend who told me. Uh, you know, the, the way it is right now, nobody outside the black community can fix things in the black community. But at least what we can do is is stop. Because I'm sorry to keep ranting, and I'll I'll stop in a sec. But listen, man. I don't care fundamentally about the feelings of black activists. I I don't care. I I don't think that they're like. And I'm talking like not the the more responsibility-bound and educate yourselves and toxic cultural black activists, right? I mean, like the, you know, white, institutionalized racist, social justice warrior, bullshit artists, right? Mm -hmm. I don't care about their feelings. I'll tell you who I care about, fundamentally. And this is true for so much of what I say. If you unravel most of my speeches, you'll find this tiny beating heart at the core. What I really care about is the black kids. The black babies coming out. Wouldn't it be nice for them to have a dad around? Yeah, it really, really would. Absolutely. Wouldn't it be nice for them to, not, to know that the government didn't have to step in and pinch hit for them so they could get on first fucking base? Do you know how disempowering it is for young black kids to look at the world and say, well, shit, we can't even get a job if the government doesn't force people to hire us. How crappy are we? The government will go and round up a date for you and deliver to you in an armored car and have her kiss you at gunpoint. Do you feel pretty yet? Bet you don't. That jobs and economic opportunities need to be rounded up by the state and delivered to blacks? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? How is that supposed to make them feel equal 
or competent or powerful or effective in their society. Now, the only answer is that they are wonderful and competent and effective, exactly the same as, say, Asians. It's just that everyone in the world hates them. <laughs> right? Because, you know, if white racism wouldn't explain it. Because Asians have higher per capita income and uh, almost as much, well, not as high assets just because they've been around as long, higher per capita income than whites. Asians start a whole bunch of companies, right? And Asians then should be, because they're smarter than whites on average, right? 106 to 100. Asians are smarter than whites and have a higher per capita income, significantly entrepreneurial, so they should be able to tap into this unmined resource of black excellence and competence. But they don't, which I guess means that Asians are also racist against blacks. What about Jews? Jews have an even higher IQ than Asians, at least Ashkenazim. 110, 115, 120s if you just count verbal and ditch the spatial reasoning. Black, of course, Jews are incredibly entrepreneurial and very successful. I guess the massive amounts of white anti-Semitism is they're just biding their time. <laughs> it's just biding its time. Well, first we're going to wait till they have all the power. Anyway, so, so but, but even Jews won't tap into this huge resource of amazing black intelligence. But, right, so, oh, the Jews might, like, everyone. That's the only way that affirmative action can be justified. Because if only whites didn't want to hire blacks because of white racism, boy, they'd learn pretty quick because all the talented blacks be snapped up by everyone else. White companies would go out of business because they'd be significantly limiting their acceptance of applicants. Yeah, same goes for, uh, for so women, So the only too. way that this... Sorry. Yeah, yeah. What's another? <laughs> let's just try and offend one group yeah. at a time, if that's all right. I don't think we've offended just about everyone so far, but let's continue. <laughs> I think there's probably still someone in Lapland who hasn't been offended. But so the only answer as to why the black community needs massive amounts of government enforcement and support and and rounding up hires to give them jobs or basically go to jail is well, everyone's got to hate us, and that's the message that affirmative action gives and how that is not anything but unbelievably destructive to young black people I cannot fathom and I'm just again this is just basic empathy I mean if I lived in a black dominated society dominated is the wrong word let's just say I lived in a majority black society and I knew walking into every job interview that this person might be forced to hire me against his wishes that he just really didn't like me but I could use the power of the state to force him to hire me or go to jail well that's job rape how humiliating that would be how wretched that would be how inferior that would make me feel you can't get a job unless the government points a gun at someone and forces them to hire you. Oh, God. 
That's the message that's been pounded in to the black youth through all of this affirmative action. And I don't just mean the hiring stuff. I mean all of it. All of it. But that's being imbibed by the black youth, and that is the most destructive element of everything that's going on. Blacks are not children. Blacks are not dumb. And I join with a huge legion of black activists in saying, stop blaming. Stop doing stupid shit. Everybody in the West lives in a first world country. Way more opportunities in the first world country than at any other time in history and any other place in the world. So, step up or shut up. Because my guilt is out. Yeah, definitely. All right. Got to move on to the next caller. Thank you very right. much. Thanks for having me. For your question. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks, Armin. All right. Well, up next is Martin. Martin wrote in and said, Since I started watching Stefan's videos, I've realized that I abused my children as they were growing up. I spanked them, yelled at them, and even once got into a fist fight with my teenage son. I believe that I was, quote, doing the right thing but I'm now ashamed of the things that I have done to them. I've expressed this regret to them and have been working over the last two years to change my parenting style. The problem is that my children don't agree and have even said that they wished I had spanked them more. How do I help my teenage and adult children to understand that I made mistakes when I raised them and convince them that spanking and hitting are wrong? How do I stop the cycle of violence that I was raised with and have now perpetuated into my family's future? That's from Martin. Mm. Great question, Martin. I really appreciate the courage it takes to call in with something like this. Uh, you know, massive respect. It's, uh, it's been difficult uh, the last probably year and a half, two years, really, since I, you know, thought about it and, and started coming, you know, to these conclusions. And um, uh, it's there's been issues within our family, um, you know, arguments and. Uh, just major trauma and, and drama and problems, uh, arguing between the siblings and uh, things like that. And it's been a lot mm-hmm. of difficulties to get through. So, you know, and, yeah. and I want to get it to stop. So it's really, it's really what it's about. <laughs> Question. Um, do you want me to dig into the I, I think I've got a firm fairly firm grasp on the history and I I apologize for even saying that because obviously the history is complex yeah, and so on. Of course. Do you want to dig into the past a little more or do you want me to tell you what I think is going on now? Um, well uh, what I want is pra- what I'd like is practicality, something that um I can really take and move forward with I would guess. Um I mean, I have a lot of personal history myself and obviously a lot of history uh, within my family, you know, my children and my wife and stuff. But um, I don't know. Uh, whatever. Let me let me ask you a question. We'll see if we'll see if it's fruitful. Okay. And if not, we'll I don't want to drive. I know you want to get I can sense from the email you want to get to someplace practical. Yeah. And I don't want to drive with my eyes firmly glued on the rearview mirror if we're going exactly. fast, right? So let me ask you this question. Your kids, what, 
what is your kids' social circle like? Who are their peers at the moment? Who are they hanging out with? Who are they spending time My with? My son is spending a lot of time with me right now. Um, he uh, He's 19 years old, um, out of high school, and uh, does not have a job and lives lives here at home and we play a lot of video games together and stuff um just as an fyi about a month and a half ago i quit a corporate job that i'd had for six years um and uh, i did that because of uh moral reasons and i haven't been able to find a job yet since then and oh six months it's been a few it's been a month and a half since since i quit um so i've been spending a lot of time out so in recent. Right. You have not answered have my not question. Actually, um, so my son. No, that's fine. Me. I just wanted to yeah, point it out. My son hangs out with me a lot. He has a few friends. We have a few friends online that we say together, um, that we talk to via Skype. My oldest daughter, um, she works three jobs. She's 21. She doesn't have a lot of social time. Um, but, uh, she is dating the next door neighbor's son and, uh, um, they are trying to move in together. So there's that. What's he like? Um, he is, he has two children with two different women and is eight years older than uh, she is. Eight years older than she is. Nine years old. Nine. Okay. So, so here we have the answer. Without even having to go any further, we have the answer. Now, do you know why I asked about your children's peers? Um, I know that uh, peers tend to have a lot more influence than adults, especially in the teenage and young adult life. But other than that, no. All right. So when you hit your children, when you get involved in fistfights, as you said, with your son when he was a teenager, when you hit your children, what happens is you shape who they are. I know. And, you know, we, we just had um, Dr. Eric Turkheimer on the show. The sh- it's not been released yet, but watch it because he, he – watch it. That sounds, watch it, man. But you should watch it because he talks about how ch- d- 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 children who are, are physically disciplined where it's sort of calm and it's explained and it's a couple of light taps on the butt, they don't tend to do that bad, right? But that wasn't your kind of discipline. Your kind of discipline was kind of like an escalation and a lashing out. Yeah, there were many times like that. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it doesn't matter how often it happened, but it it happened enough times for sure. Right. And so what's happened is that you have created in your children patterns that have drawn them into or kept them in a particular social environment. And that social environment is, at least according to your report of your sister's boyfriend, kind of low rent, right? A little trashy. My daughter's boyfriend. Right. Sorry, my daughter's boyfriend. So so when they say, sorry, when they say that they have no problem with what you did, what they're saying is, you helped us to adapt to our horizontal peer environment. And if you change and you regret what you've done, we can't hang out with these people anymore who are our friends. If we change and we improve, then we have to get better friends and better boyfriends. And 
they're they don't want to do that because you know especially to a young person you know peers are very important and it's sort of like uh all right son we're going to japan i'm going to teach you all japanese and and sons and daughters and now we're going to get you embedded in the japanese culture and now all of your friends are going to be japanese speaking people and you're going to know everything there is to know about the japanese culture and then after they've been in that Japanese culture for 20 or so years, you say, kids, it was a terrible mistake to move to Japan. Japan is the worst place ever. We're now going to Iceland. <laughs> what would they say? Yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't agree with that at all. They'd be mad. No, they'd be say, angry. I'm glad you brought us to Japan. Yeah. This is all we they'd know. They'd be angry with me right? for trying to remove them from it. I know that. Yeah, like why the hell would you bring us to Japan and then say it was a really bad and wrong thing for you to bring us to Japan? What are you crazy? Yeah. Is this uh, is this a fair approximation to what may be going down? Um, yeah, I can see that for sure. Uh, there's been, um, you know, I really, I really tried to stop doing um, physical discipline at a young age with them because um, I, what made me realize was. I grabbed my daughter. She was, I believe she was nine or 10 years old at the time. I just grabbed her by the arm really angrily and pulled her to towards me and gritted my teeth and, you know, said something. I don't even remember what it was about, but I grabbed her so hard. I left a bruise on her arm in the shape of my hand. And that's when I just completely stopped. But that by that time, it was, it was too late. There was lashing out from, from them on to me, especially when they started hitting their teenage years. And, uh, yeah, and my wife still continued to do it to, because, you know, I, I thought that was what was right. And it, I know that's not an excuse. That's not a valid reason. Well, you, I assume you didn't read the books on parenting or whatever that might have given you different No, options. I truly believed that uh, the things that my parents had taught me were the right things to do because I considered myself a good person, and the only way that I was that good person was because of the things that I had gone through. That was, in fact, the attitude that I had and the things that I told people. I said that I would not change anything that I'd ever been through because... Yeah, I'm a good person. I love who I am. And meanwhile, here I am doing these violent things. Yeah. I mean, it, it is horrifying, right? Like you look at yourself saying, well, how did I get here? Yeah. Right? yeah. And it's, it's been a struggle to actually just deal with the stuff myself. And even, you know, my wife and I still disagree a lot of times and she gets very angry at me because I'm accusing her of abusing her children and she loves her children and I, you know, right. accusing her of being a bad parent and therefore I no longer love her because of this stuff. And yeah, it's been a struggle there. I mean, we don't have, I mean, it hasn't come to the point where, you know, we disagree so much that we can't be around each other, but, um, we, we talk openly about this and then, once in a while, it gets very angry, and we have to stop, and it seems like we never resolve the issue. So, Right. Right. No, listen, I mean, this is why change is so hard. It's hard enough if you're, like, solo. Yeah. If you've got other passengers in your plane of life, it's, you know, yeah, it's really a challenge. Yes. So, 
I mean, you switch into the autopilot of virtue, and they think you're diving into a yeah. cliff, right? And um, I mean, a little bit uh, about my past. The thing is, I um, I realized that I had been abused, and my parents, you know, were bad people a long time ago. And in fact, what we did was. Um, it was uh, 17 years ago when we decided we were leaving the town that we grew up in where my parents were because they were just too much into our family and trying to tear our family apart, it seemed like. Um, and I left. Oh, this is yeah, you and your wife? we left. Yeah, we yeah, did. Yeah. And we didn't speak to my parents for three years, I think. And at this point right now, it's been four years since I've even seen or talked to or heard from my parents at all. Um, because of all of this, so, and they don't consider us family. Well, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm obviously sorry to hear about all of that, but I certainly understand. But, um, that's one of the problems you're... too, is because um, because I did that. Um, you know, I've been my uh, youngest feels like she can, you know, say that we're not her family, and she sometimes pretends like we're not. Um, she's 17 years old and, um, she once even called the cops on my wife and saying that, um, she didn't know who her mom, this woman was and this woman's in her house and the cops came over and took her. Wait, what? She, she pretended, she pretended your wife was an intruder? Yeah, and called 911 said, I don't know who this woman is and her brother too. And, uh, yeah, that was a few months ago. So, wow. Yeah. And the cops under, you know, they said they understood and they took her and she spent a night in the hospital because um, she told them that uh, she was hearing voices in her head, um, which, uh, you know, I, it, we've tried to get her to go through counseling and stuff. Um, she doesn't, we almost literally have to physically force her out the door to do it and we can't. I can't do that anymore. I used to be able to just pick them up and do that, but I. Oh yeah, yeah they get they bigger get and bigger. you get older. Yeah, right? Exactly, and that's what happened with my son a few years ago when we got into the fist fight. You know, so um, I went through a lot of this stuff with my own parents when I was a teenager as well. I got into plenty, like a number of fist fights with my father, and uh, yeah, I was pretty um physically uh punished as long as they could do it to me yeah i mean you have an adverse childhood experience score of eight which is you know pretty pretty wretched so i sympathize with you for all of that so is it fair to say that your family is in significant crisis um it's in a plateau right now but it's very close to a crisis it can, it seems like it's on edge every day. Um, there's always little things that go on. Oh, hold on, somebody. I hope you recognize that dog yeah, in your house. That's my dog. It sounds to me kind of like if I had to guess, your daughter's involved with this guy who's, what, eight years older than she is and has had two kids by two different women. And I'm guessing that your daughter is imminently number three. Right, so the odds are, I would imagine, that your daughter is going to get pregnant by this guy, and then your life becomes permanently exceedingly complicated. And uh, this seems like a very urgent moment to me. 
Yes. Yeah. I don't want to stop her from making her own decisions. She wants to, um, she wants to move. Oh, out. no, you do. No, listen, if, if she wants, if she's going to go live with this guy, she's going to get knocked up. And that's a disaster. So, yes. I mean, obviously you can't force her and, you know, I guess she's an adult and all that. Did you say she was, she's over? She's, she's, she's 21. 18, she right? turned 21. Yeah. So you, you can't, uh, you know, you can't force her. I mean, the die is somewhat cast now. But, you know, I, I think that where you are as a family is far beyond, you know, what an internet philosophy show can deal with. And so my suggestion would be that um, I know you sort of drag her to therapy and so on, but I think that you and your wife and, and at least or, or even just you, if you can't get her to go, like you got to get to a family crisis specialist like yesterday. Yeah. It might be. Yeah. Because right? this is all this is all hanging over an abyss, right? I mean, if you've got a daughter who claims to be hearing voices and you've got a daughter who calls up the cops and says she doesn't recognize her own mother and spends the night in hospital, is this the same daughter who's shacking up with this no. dirtbag who's banged up? No, these other no. Kids? See, and that's the thing is um, I've, the younger daughter is also dating the next door neighbor's son. They're brothers. Um, and, uh, oh, oh, yeah. oh, your sister's dating brothers. Yep. Oh, uh, it's street cest. Okay. Yeah, and, right. um, so they don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. They don't like, uh, you know, cause my youngest daughter started dating the neighbor, um, like a year and a half ago. And, uh, my daughter just started dating his brother, like maybe six months ago. So. Yeah, and these I these sound like real dirtbags to me. No. I wouldn't say that to their faces. Uh, I try to judge people based on the individual stuff that they do. I could say that because I don't live next yes, door to them. So, all, but I am not uh, particularly. They're not the. People, Come on, man! Two two kids that. by two different women. Yeah, and that's well, dirtbag territory, they live, right? Um, they lived there with their dad, who also had many kids from different women um, as well. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's... So, multi-generational dirtbag nest. Okay, fine. So, this is because these guys are probably going to knock your daughters up. That's, That's next. There's already been, with the youngest, there's been two pregnancy scares. Right. And unfortunately, you can't fire a cannon full of birth suppressants at them, right? So um, we, uh, we did get uh, both of them birth control. Good. I mean, now that then the risk is just STDs, which is not in this case babies. All right. So, yeah, your family is pretty much in, in serious crisis mode, right? I mean, and um, for that, you need, you know, I don't think there's anything philosophically that I can uh, tell you uh, other than this is where philosophy ends, and I think you really need professionals in there helping you guys with this stuff. I mean, I got to think, like, the self-esteem of your daughters to date these guys, that they think that this is the best they can do, their self-esteem must just be in the toilet. Or maybe it's way too high, you know, I mean, in terms of, like, they just think that they know everything and no one can tell them anything and so on. But the basic facts about just how wretched these guys are is... Uh, it's terrible. 
it's a terrible situation. I mean, I feel for you, man. It's a horrible situation. But I, you know, I really think that you net you need um, you need specialists in here, people who who really know their stuff, who can really work with your family to try and turn this uh, this around. What does your wife think of these guys that your daughters are dating? She she doesn't. I think she likes the older guy, but I know she's very skeptical uh. too. She tells my daughter that you need to really think hard about this and it's not the best way. We were 18. She likes the guy who has two kids by two different w- yeah. women? Oh, no. Oh, no. And that's why they're able to date them. I mean, what would your wife consider a red flag? Do do, do they exist in her universe? Are there any danger signals for any guys? Do they have to, like, show up to your house in, like, Jofers and with a live deer head as a hat? I mean, what are the red flags for your wife? I don't think she considers kids to be a red flag because the just... Well, no, kids, okay, maybe, you know, I mean, she's 35 and there's some guy whose wife died and it's not that kids are, it's not the kids part, it's that he's way older than your daughter, which means either she's fantastically mature or he's ridiculously immature, it's, it's right? I mean, wrong, yeah, of course, it's right, eight years when she's 21. Yeah, she's extremely you know? ambitious too. Like I said, she's got three jobs. She's always been that way. She was diagnosed with dys- dyslexia and learning disabilities as a young age, and she basically told them, you know, they told her she would never be able to read the way that she wanted to, and she said, no, I'll read how much I want, and then ended up spending most of her teenage years reading books in her bedroom. So, I mean, she's just one of those really hard workers. When she was 12 years old, she was... Right, you. Uh, well, you, you I love her. You just lot. remind your wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hang on, man. You, you just, you just remind your wife that when this guy was learning how to masturbate, your daughter was still peeing her diapers. That's gross. And also that relationships where there are significant differences in age, and this isn't just the eight years. It's one, the one thing to be seventy-two and eighty. You know, or, or, or 56 and 64, but 21, a 20 and 28 she's, and two kids with yeah, other. I think he's, I uh, think he just turned 30 and she just turned 21. So, uh, uh, so nine, nine years. years yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, that's not that's not good, right? And and the dad's a philanderer, right? The dad is a man whore, right? Their dad. Um, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't ever see women over there. He's old. You told me. You said few. that he had lots of yeah, different he's kids. Got, I think he's got six. He's got a few. From <laughs> you make you make it months. sound like quarters. Well, he's got a few quarters jingling around <laughs> in his pocket. No, he's got a few kids by women he's not married yeah, to, right? Yeah, they're. I think his youngest just turned eighteen recently. So. And then, of course, his right. oldest is 30. Right. Right. So your wife is like, 
just your wife genuine do you think she genuinely can't see that this is could be any kind of no, problem? No, I don't think she can't genuinely see. I think she wants to support her daughter, not tell her daughter what to do, but I keep telling her Why? She, why can't she see that this is a problem? I don't mean to insult your wife, but did she join the other kids in the short bus to school? I mean, well, why Why can your wife not she see this? She's not very educated and not very... Um, she thought that I'm not talking. You don't need a PhD for this stuff. You just need the common sense God gives your average She platypus. grew up without a father at all. And uh, she... She... I, I don't know. She clings on to she i think she clinged on to me you know when we were young obviously and um, i i don't know exactly how to explain how did she feel about not growing up with the dead oh she i mean she hated it um she (laughs) no that's not one of your dogs in the background that's just me making my exasperation noise if she hated growing up without a dad, what does she think about this entire family? I think she thinks that the of women, uh, distant I think dads. She thinks the women took it away from the men because in her life, that's the way that her mother did it with her. Um, she, her mother, ran off with her and wouldn't let um, her father have any contact with her at all. Um, I that. Well, I think it's because her mother's stupid, but. I don't, I don't know exactly. She, the guy's not nice at all. She eventually found him when she was a teenager, talked to him once or twice on the phone, and then found him again when we were 21, and we went and visited him um, across the U.S. and for Christmas, and um, it wasn't very long after that that he told us that he didn't want anything to do with us at all, so... Okay, so does she understand that her mother made a terrible choice? Oh, yeah. Of who to have kids with? Does she understand that her daughters are doing exactly the same thing? I don't think she understands. She will understand it if pointed out, though, right? She might. No. Is she there? She had a function she had to go to for a, a food bank she volunteers for. Okay, yeah, that's important. Food bank. All right, okay. Well, you play this for her later, if you don't mind. All right, I'm not going to ask her name. I'm going to call her (laughs) Madam X. (laughs) All right, are you ready? Hello, I'm sorry that you couldn't be with us. I would suggest that the crisis in your family is a little bit more important than the food bank that's currently going on with you at the moment. That's my particular perspective. But you don't have to have your daughters have the same life that you had. There were aspects of your life growing up that were wretched for you. Growing up without a dad. Growing up with a mom who had no respect for or love for your biological father. In fact, kept him out of your life. And as you found out when you contacted him in your teens and then in your early 20s, for good reason. He was a bit of a D-bag. Sorry about that, you know, we don't all get to control our sperm donors. In fact, none of us do. I mean, you can't control machinery before you're even there. But you've got to see the degree to which your daughters are following the same pattern that your mother did. Now, you made a better choice. You've got a guy who 
Obviously, it was a bit rough-handed or a lot rough-handed, but the kid's growing up, but it's wising up now and trying to do something better. But it doesn't have to be the same for your daughters as it was for you. And in fact, given that you're older and you have the experience and you know what it's like to grow up without a dad, you are fully responsible for what happens to them now. Now, you're going to say, but they're adults. They have to make their own choices. No. No. Because you have not given them the information they need to make better choices. You have withheld from them the information that they need to make better choices. You need to sit down with them and you need to say that they are in grave danger of getting involved with guys who will make terrible fathers. And we know that because they're not married to any of the women they had children with already. You're in grave danger of settling down with guys who will make terrible fathers. I grew up with that. And I've kept that information from you, maybe to protect you, maybe to protect myself. doesn't matter right now. I need to give you this information right now. These guys are, to put it as nicely as possible, not exactly top-tier individuals. I think you can do better. I think you can do better. But in order for you to do better, you need to know what not doing better looks like. What not doing better means having a guy who's going to knock you up, who's going to be unreliable, who's not going to be around, who you're going to be ashamed to have around your children, who you're going to be frightened of, who might be vengeful, who might be crazy, who might be unstable, who's not going to be there for you, and you are going to be crying to your, crying yourself to sleep every night with your baby fussing in the corner, wondering how on earth you ended up in a place of like interplanetary loneliness, where you've got a life or lives dependent on you, no man to share the burden with, no provider to ease their wants, no one to snuggle up with. You'll go for days without having an adult conversation. And your children, who should be your greatest blessing, may feel like your deepest curse. And all the joys of motherhood, which are in many ways the most profound joys of womanhood, will be taken from you and replaced with a bitter resentment and a fear and an anxiety and a hostility and a short temper and an irritability and a tiredness and a wantingness and a hunger for resources, contact, connection, communication, love. And you'll know every day that you wake up without a father there, you'll know that your children are looking at a family portrait of you and them. And there's a big, giant hole where their father should be. And that giant hole in the family portrait where their father should be will transfer to their own heart. And it will have a man-sized hole in their heart where their father's connection and love and contact and communication should have been. And that hole in their heart will lie dormant until they hit puberty. And then that hole in their heart, the shape of their father, will cry out for male contact. And when your children grow up without a father, and your daughters in particular, when they cry out for male contact, they will be like a hungry, starving, dying man at a buffet. They won't wait for a good meal. They'll grab whatever is closest. Maybe even the boy next door.
And thus the cycle will repeat. And thus the cycle will repeat. And thus the cycle will repeat. But it doesn't have to be. If you tell them the truth about what it was like for you growing up without a father, about how painful it was for you first to not know your father and then to know your father, and by that I mean your white trash sperm donor, then maybe they can awaken from this deep days of spinning history, this, you know, when the music's played out on an old 45, you guys are young, what do you know? <laughs> when your music's played, younger than me, when your music is played out on an old 45, you just get, and the thing just goes round and round, and that's where you are. Empty fathers, absent fathers, empty fathers, absent fathers. The hole in your children's heart from father absence will be filled up with father trash in the future. And that's how the cycle repeats. And your father and I have apologizing to do. I know it's uncomfortable. And I know that it means that things are going to change in your life. But you're heading the same place that my mother was heading. And it's my lack of communication and my lack of clarity with you that is making that happen. And that's my fault. Now, it's your responsibility to listen because I'll tell you something else. I'll tell you something else. You could get away with the shit in the past, but where society is heading, there is not going to be enough money to pay for fatherless children in the future. There are over $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities. I don't know how much money that is, but I believe it's quite a lot. If they told me I won that lottery, I think I'd do three skips around the living room at least. That's a lot of money. Can't be paid. So in the past, there was this, oh, you know, well, I can get knocked up by an unreliable guy. It's okay. Daddy government will step in and take his place. It's going to be great. <laughs> I don't have to wash any underwear with skid marks. It's going to be great. There won't be one side of the couch that gets really squished down. I won't have to watch the wire and spinal tap and pretend to know what the hell's going on. <laughs> or like it. There'll only be tiny little squeaks. No deep, manly gorilla farts in bed. There'll be more wine and less beer. More pitas. Oh, less meat. So in the past, you could uh, have father absence and survive. It ain't going to be that way for long. And the worst and the worst and the worst is going to happen. That you're going to make decisions around fatherlessness that may have worked for my mother or may even have worked for me, but sure as sunrise are not going to work for you. The urgency of not having children out of wedlock now is higher than it has been since the 1930s. It is a new era that is going to dawn. The money won't be there. And then you're going to end up, because the money is not going to be there to pay for your illegitimate children, for what used to be colloquially known as your bastards, the money won't be there, and you're just going to have to grab any guy who's willing to throw $1.50 a week your way. And that's going to be far worse 
and far more destructive to your children than any decision you could make now. So you need to stop this course. And that would be something that I think she needs to talk about. But no, the option of, well, they're adults and they can make their own decisions. Eh, you're still the parents. Okay, you can't hit them. <laughs> you should never have hit them. But that doesn't mean you have no influence. Doesn't mean you don't have any authority. And I get it. This is a huge change. How do you influence adult children when you've raised them in some ways not well or badly? How do you do it? Well, that's something you need to work with with an expert because I can't give you that answer. Philosophy is about prevention, not cure, right? I don't know. It cured me. I'm about <laughs> diet, not cardiology, right? Sorry? Philosophy cured a lot. Well, I'm, and I appreciate that. And I mean, you are a testament as to what change is possible, but how ch hard change is, right? And, uh, you know, you probably days wish you, you'd never heard that hitting your kids was bad because you could have sailed on and Right, but this is this is the heroism that changes the world. It's it's not about uh, you know all these movies where you upload viruses to the bowels of spaceships in orbit. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, that's not it's bullshit. Right? I rushed a guy on a train who had a gun. <laughs> it's great, but I'm going to save the world. What you're doing is going to save the world. But you need, in my opinion, experts to help you out, to help you to negotiate, to help you figure out how to get your kids to understand stuff that your wife in particular seems to have shielded them from and how to communicate them without aggression, without violence in a way that is not going to have them call up uh, cops and say that you're <laughs> my house is haunted by two people who look vaguely like my parents who are dead, right? I mean, that's just some crazy stuff, right? And, and I think at this level of extremity, you need more more than backup, right? You need people front and center helping you navigate and negotiate. Well, I know stuff. she would argue that we didn't abuse our children. We've had this discussion many times, and she would say that what we did was not. Okay, but so, but so, but that, I don't think that's an that's not an argument to get into in particular at the moment, right? I mean, whether or not you accidentally steered into the iceberg, the ship is still going down. And the important thing now is not what caused it, but what's happening now. Your daughters are getting involved with really trashy, unreliable, dangerous guys. So, okay, fine. Concede that point. Okay, we didn't abuse them. Fine. Somehow, mysteriously, they ended up dating these low-rent guys. That's what we've got to deal with. Because the moment they get pregnant, man, that's your life. There's your next 20 to 30 years. The moment they get pregnant, these guys aren't going to marry them. And if they do marry them, what kind of resources are they going to have if they've got to pay child support to two other women? It's going to be a low IQ gene pool, to put it as nicely as humanly possible. And you're going to have these douchebags floating around your lives for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. And what's going to, I don't mean to put it as crudely as this, but what the hell is going to happen to your daughter's marriage market value if they have kids with these jerk-offs? What good, honest, respectful, responsible, productive, decent, intelligent guy is going to want to shack up with them after this? 
if this happens. This is make or break for your entire gene pool. This is the urgency I'm trying to point, point you in. They get knocked up. That's it for them. That's yeah, it for that's you. That's really where you know it, it lies for me, too, is that I know I'm going to have grandchildren. And I don't want to see them put through what I went through or what I put my kids through. Oh, your entire, your entire, the quality of your life as a grandparent is going to be shit in this circumstance. Because the kids are going to grow up in chaos, in need. And if your kids don't get their heads screwed on right before they have kids, what are the odds that's going to happen afterwards? Yeah, it's not, it's no. not going to be good. Yeah, slim to none. And so if you, wanna, you, want, you want your kids to enjoy being parents and you want to enjoy being a grandparent, that means you've got you to gotta ditch the himbos and you've got to start steering your daughters towards some quality guys. I mean, assume they don't have tentacles coming out of their ears and four eyes and a third nipple, although maybe the third nipple is fun for some people, but, um, you know, they're, you know, they don't have to bottom feed like this, right? That's probably what they're comfortable with. Uh, that tragically is where they feel they're at home. But if you can't pry them off these leech kings, I mean, you, you're going to just, I think it's going to break your heart for the next 20 years watching how these grandkids get raised and what their life is like. Because the guys who come after the guys who knock your daughters up are even worse than the guys who knock your daughters up, right? Because their sexual market and marriage market value is more than halfway to China by then. And your daughters will now have the kind of red flags that will steer any decent man in the opposite direction, right? Any decent man who can read any kind of red flags is going to look at your daughters and say, oh, okay, so you got pregnant with a guy who'd already had a bunch of kids with other women he wasn't married to. Now you and that guy aren't together, but he's still hanging around, but he doesn't really pay you any alimony, so you're going to need a lot of child support, so you're going to need a lot of resources from me, and you've already shown that you made a really bad decision, and I'm going to judge your parents by that, and then this guy's going to be floating around, he's going to be creepily looking over my shoulder as I'm the new dad, and your kids are going to be all traumatized from being growing up in this chaos, dadless environment, and they're going to scream at me, you're not my real dad, 24-7. I mean, why would any guy of quality with options want to get involved in that? And that's the future that your kids are facing without strenuous professionally-led intervention now. I don't know how you get your kids to listen. I'm not, right? That's not my, that's not my training. That's not my experience. That's not my job. That's not my, right, credentials, anything, right? So, so you need to get to people who, there's lots of people experienced with how to deal with these kinds of crises in a family. I'm not them, but they exist, right? You're family crisis counselors or whatever, right? Yeah, we went to a few family counseling sessions together, um, the whole family, uh, before my insurance ran out, um, but uh, we haven't been able to do that since then. Um, my son and my daughter have individual counseling, well, but they usually ditch it. They don't go. Like I said, this I, I, 
I, I, I take another shot, man, whatever you can do. Uh, because, uh, you know, the amount of money you're going to have to spend if one of your kids gets knocked up is going to be far more than you'll spend on therapy now. You know, penny wise, pound foolish, right? I mean, you spend the money now. A stitch in time saves nine kind of thing, right? I mean, I think it's worth spending the money now so that you don't end up with uh, an intractable disaster. Later, once, once kids come into the picture, your choices are all gone. All gone. Assuming your daughters keep the kids, right? Don't have an abortion or give them up for adoption. Once the kids want your daughters, I mean, your options are all done for the most part. Um, yeah, I'm very concerned that if I try to... Um you know, discuss these things or force, you know, tell them some of these things that uh, they will do the same thing that I did with my parents as well. It's one of my biggest fears. Just leave. And I get that. I get that. And, you know, I mean, I think you're in a position of deserving better than that now that you're admitting faults and trying to change things. But don't imagine you can do this alone. Right. This is why. Oh, well, if I sit down and tell, don't don't like talk to it, even if it's just you, if you're the only person who can go, go to someone and say, here's what I'm facing. What do I do? There are people who've got experience in this area. And you won't be speaking alone in terms of just going in there and trying something without knowing what the effects will be. There are people who've got experience in this stuff. All right. If you can't afford any therapy at all, as the offer stands, as it does for emergency situations, give us a call. You know, We'll front some of the bills. We'll, we'll pay for some of the bills through this show. I'll pay for some of the bills. But I need you to at least have... You know, maybe you'll succeed, maybe you'll fail, but at least you want you to be acting with as much expert knowledge as possible. So if, you're, if, you, can't, if you can't afford it, just let us know. We'll, we'll cover a couple of sessions. It's certainly well worth it to me. Well, I'd, I would definitely... Um wouldn't mind uh, offering services in return if they came to that as well. So. Yeah, don't let don't let price be an issue. I mean, it's a it's an investment. It's well worth it. So, um, just go find the people, get the quotes. You know, even five sessions or whatever can can make the world a difference with people who you know. Hey, my family's in crisis. My kids are adults. Here's what I'm concerned about. They're not interested in coming. Only I can come. I need strategies on how to deal with this and. Uh, there are people who, who do that, and you don't need to be reliant on the acceptance of other people to, to join you in that. So that would be my suggestion uh, uh, about the approach to take. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. All right. Will you keep us uh, – listen, man, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, really taking a stand here. It's heroic. It's magnificent. You magnificent bastard. And uh, you'll keep us posted, and you will let us know. Um, you'll let us know how it goes, and you'll let us know if there's any resources that we can give you okay. if you need them. I will let you know. Thank you. All right. Is that a promise? You'll you'll let us know if you need resources, and you'll keep us posted. And I'll let you know if I need resources. And that is that is a promise. a promise, right? All right. I'm spitting in my hand, and I'm giving you a digital right. handshake. <laughs> if if you, next cut next, I have to cut my hand, so don't make me do that. No. It interferes with my tennis grip which isn't as important to me now as when I was a teenager. But anyway, Thank you. thanks, man. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your feedback, and I, I look forward to hearing how it goes. Thank you. All right, let's do Uno von Morinus. All right. Well, up next is Zach. Zach wrote in and said, In my experience, the more someone understands about politics, the more they tend towards one of two ideologies, libertarianism or some uh, derivation 
of a powerful nationalistic regional state. A common argument against libertarianism is that without the cultural inertia of a church or government, the individuals of a society will tend towards nihilism and hedonism. Although I agree with Stefan that libertarianism is the ideal, is a nationalistic regional state a more realistic form of government, as it would require far less intelligence and morality in the populace? That's from Zach. <laughs> All right, Zach. How you doing? All right, so give me this, uh, it's either a statelessness or fascism. Is that, is that what we're facing here? Hmm. Um, that's an interesting dichotomy that you brought up. Uh, I'm, I'm not really... No, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to understand the dichotomy that you brought up, not, not mine. Um, hmm. I'm trying to... That, that's, I'm trying to... I'm sorry. All right, I should start with this. I, I'm really excited. I'm a big fan of your show. This is a huge deal for me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, but anyway... Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm very happy right. to be chatting. Um, the problem with a medium state, a state that's in between being libertarianism or mostly fascist, is that uh, all kinds of different factors come into play. Media, um, uh, social trends, like a new fashion, like, oh, you can't be racist, you can't be whatever. Uh, those kind of things come and go. Whereas if you are in a libertarian state, that's less likely to be the case. Or if you're a fascist, it's also less likely, likely to be, be the case. Oh. Although um, I'm not really advocating fascism here. I'm just trying to bring up the dichotomy and the difference between the two. All right. Um, I'm not sure that clarified a lot for me. Um, so let me just make sure I understand the um, the question. All right. So when people get into politics, you say they kind of go one of two ways, right? Either towards libertarianism, which I, I assume it means like the night watchman state, the government that deals with the police, law courts, military, maybe the prisons, and it's just the the Arbiter of disputes doesn't get involved, that kind of um, stuff. Right? All right. Uh, what I meant was when people get into politics and become right-wing, usually they stay Republican for a while, but then once time passes, they go towards your route of being a libertarian, or they become very extreme, like 4chan's poll or uh, Stormfront or one of those kind of fascist websites. So uh, that's usually the end ending. Uh, and, and yes, the, the brand of libertarianism I am talking about is uh, the brand you just mentioned, the Night Watchman State. Right. Okay. And um, I don't know much about. Actually, I don't really know anything about. What was it? Stormfront and was it 4chan? Give me, give me a brief overview of those. Alternate sites. right. I don't know the much new about alternate them. right, where people are uh, advocating like, "Oh, Hitler did nothing wrong." That kind of stuff. Uh, that's usually the end goal, or not end goal, the end point of many people. Hitler did nothing <laughs> wrong. Are you, are you, you're not mischaracterizing these people a little, are you? I mean, that seems a little uh, bit. It, 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 it gets towards that point. I'm, okay, so I'll, I'll start. I'll validate. Well, no, so. Wouldn't it be more like Hitler had a point, even though what he did was whatever, whatever? Sorry, right? I'm I'm a little bit excited. I drank too much coffee, but I'll I'll, I'll try and. No, that's fine. That's fine. I just I'm just trying to uh, uh, I'm just trying to understand what it is that you're characterizing as these people's positions. And again, I don't know. Maybe they do say Hitler was all good, um, but uh, you know, and and I only know some of this stuff because on my video, what pisses me off about the migrant crisis, which I hope people will check out. You know, there have been a few commenters who were like, this, this, this wouldn't have happened if Hitler was in power, <laughs> which, you know, could be true, but that doesn't mean that other god-awful things wouldn't be happening if Hitler was in power kind of thing, right? I mean... Right. Uh, so I'll try and validate what I was saying. Uh, so I mentioned 4chan poll, I mentioned Stormfront. There's a couple other ones. These are all websites for people that are uh, a bit right of center to the point where Reddit and Tumblr and Facebook and all these other pages where people usually discuss politics... Uh, it, it isn't sufficient, so they, they go a little bit further right. 
Also, these people usually value freedom of speech a bit more than the moderation of Reddit and Tumblr and, uh, and Facebook would allow. Uh, and that's those are the websites I'm talking about. Uh, the, the predominant belief of those websites usually is something like um, uh, national socialism is great uh, because of various reasons that I want to bring up and discuss with you here. Yeah, okay, oh, we'll bring okay. them up. So, let, let's see. Why you make? I've not had this before, so please make the case. I know you're, you're playing devil's, devil's advocate, but make the case for national socialism. I'm, all right. Well, I'm all it in. goes back to the question that I asked. The question was: um, the, the society leans toward nihilism and hedonism. I think I pronounced that right. And uh, libertarianism is the ideal, but uh, it, it neglects the fact that people that their culture will dissolve if there isn't some sort of uh, church or state or something like that. And um, I'm going to try and try and qualify this. Uh, during, I'm learning about the Industrial Revolution at the moment, and uh, what happened during the Industrial Revolution was there was a huge boom in the economy, and the government couldn't keep up. So all these people moved to new regions, and they worked for big factories and things like that, and churches couldn't keep up and build churches in those areas, and the state wasn't strong enough to regulate anything. And what ended up happening was a lot of people stopped being very religious, and a lot of bad things started happening. Families started falling apart because the mother was working and the father was working, and... Um, Stuff like that, which I think is an interesting parallel to modern day society where uh, there's there's not much of a strong culture holding people together. There's not much of a strong religion holding people together. And so um, bad things can happen, like the caller we just had, whose family is in shambles at the moment. Uh, that's because, I, in my opinion, or the opinion of people that believe this ideology, is that uh, he didn't have a strong church telling him what to do when he was at a young age. He didn't have uh, a strong government telling him what to do at a strong age, or a strong culture telling him what to do at a young age. And so he made these mistakes, even though these mistakes have been made hundreds and thousands of times before in history. Uh, and that, that that's a problem. And so, yeah, I'm kind of rambling here. But do you understand what I'm saying? No, I'm fine. First of all, I didn't know that, that there was family breakdown in the Industrial Revolution. I knew that there was intergenerational breakdown because a lot of the young people left the country to come and work in the city because the country right, was um, horrible. I'll try and explain it. Um, so they left their parents. I didn't know if I don't know if marriages dissolved uh, or disintegrated. You obviously read more about they, that. They than didn't I dissolve, have. but gender roles broke down. Women started acting like men in that they went to work and they came home and they weren't as happy to cook and clean and things like that. Like the, the place of women and men in society became jumbled because everyone was doing pretty much the same thing. And also relationships between children and, and their parents dissolved a little bit as well. It's, hmm? Wait, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. So the thesis is that during the Industrial Revolution women started uh, working well they start working in mass yes do, do, do people think that they no but the, <laughs> i'm sorry i don't mean to laugh but it just again i could you, you've studied this more than i have but my first thought is holy crap i mean zach didn't didn't women work on the farms in <laughs> i mean i've known farmers and these women are built like oxen and they get up at six o'clock in the morning and they work pretty much till they fall and pass out at 9 p.m i mean i don't know how it's the case that Women, were, were they perceived to have a life of leisure before the Industrial Revolution? Like they sat around eating bonbons and watching, I don't know, um, soap opera hand no. puppets done uh, by their uh, kids? Or? This, I'm not very well-versed in this, but many of the uh, news outlets that I follow are pretty well-versed in this. Um, women in the past had a much more important job than, uh, than getting food or getting money. They had the role of carrying on the traditions of their, their ancestors and raising the children, which are very, very important. Whereas in the Industrial Revolution, when women... And well, families in general had to work much harder in order to make enough money to live in a big city, which they had to do for because they wanted a better life for themselves. Um, women stopped doing that role of being the passers on of tradition 
and stop being the ones raising the children as much. And so that's what I mean when I say the breakdown of society. The traditional um, family unit was no longer quite the case. Okay, I mean, I'm willing to accept that that's a perspective uh, I don't know about. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the fact that millions and millions of children didn't starve to death during the Industrial Revolution is kind of important to me. I, I have a, like, I, I value the tradition called children don't starve to death <laughs> right. fairly hardy, you know. So, so yes, if, if some of the religious edicts weren't passed down to children who weren't dead, yes, I'm, I'm okay with children's lives rather than passing right. down these edicts. The problem with culture, and you look, I've, I've heavily criticized culture in the past, and so by culture, I don't mean superstition. By culture... What, is that, what I mean is the emotional transmission of values. Because you don't have to be a nutritionist to know that you've got to eat your veggies. Uh, I would, I would. And you don't, you, you don't need to be a philosopher to know about UPB or the non-aggression principle or whatever. So for me, culture is the emotional ways in which compelling values are implanted in the general population. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with embedding emotional values into people if it results in them having a correct emotional response to that which is rational. That's a very complicated way of putting it. Let me, let no, me see okay. if I can rephrase that. Oh. You, you get it. Okay, okay. Once more, just not for oh, you, right. but for the audience as a whole. So... The way kids usually learn about food is there are dancing vegetables and you know what you know, the sugar is like an evil monster or something and and so on, right? And the way the way that it was explained to me when I was a kid was that I needed to brush my teeth because otherwise little sugar fairies would dance on my teeth and their dancing would crack my enamel and that's how the bugs would get in and make my teeth hurt. Is that true? It's not. <laughs> did it make me brush my teeth? It did. <laughs> now there's so much in life that we need prettied up for us and gooeyed up for us and so on, right? Now, who the hell wants to write assembly code when you can swipe at a screen, right? I mean, and so the culture is the way of giving people the rational emotional responses without having to have them understand all the reasons behind it. And, I mean, it's a lot more fun to play Candy Crush than manipulate ones and zeros, right? It's just more engaging and, and more fun or whatever, right? And so by culture, when I'm talking about it in the current context, I don't mean the culture that says, God is watching you, he'll send you to hell, oh, and by the way, he put the king in charge of you, so if you rebel against him, you're rebelling against God and you're going to go to hell. That's not, that to me is just, that's just how evil is transmitted. But you can use the similar mechanisms to transmit virtue as you can to transmit evil. And so I just want to be clear about that. that not all culture is created equal. I mean, I have taught my daughter about right and wrong. I have not read her UPB as a bedtime story. Actually, if I did, she'd probably go to bed earlier <laughs> just to escape the tendentiousness. But um, so uh, that's so, in terms of culture, the problem with the modern world is not a lack of culture. The problem with the modern world is the presence of force. 
See, force is the opposite of culture. Culture is what happens when you can't force people to do things. Right? There's no culture of obedience in prison between the inmates and the prison guards. There are violently enforced rules. Right? The challenge with culture is how to keep people in a prison when they can walk out at any time. It's the voluntarism of the world that stimulates the need for culture. The need to get people to do the right thing when you can't force them, and most of them aren't smart enough to render philosophical arguments in real time in the moments they need to make moral decisions. Where there is voluntarism, there is culture, because you have to have people do the right thing without forcing them. There's a culture of charity. There is no culture of welfare. Okay. Um, does, does that make so, so? So let me just sort of finish the point. So, so the people who are saying, well, there's a lack of culture, say, in Europe. There's a lack of cultural identity in Europe, and that's why all of these economic invaders are coming in. No, they're mostly not coming from Syria. No, they're not women and children. They're mostly men. No, they're not coming because they've no, got no place to live. No, they're coming for welfare benefits, and they're coming for religious colonialism reasons. Let's put it as nicely as possible. Not all, but most. So people say, well, there's no cultural unity in Europe. Well, of course there isn't. Because Europe turned culture over to the state. And when you turn culture over to the state, culture dies. Because culture is an unnecessary overhead when you can force people to do things. There's no point having culture. A rapist doesn't bring flowers and chocolates because he's going to force the woman to have sex with him. He's going to rape her. So he doesn't need the overhead of seduction. He doesn't need his Barry White CDs and he doesn't need his cologne and he doesn't need to wash his pee-pee in the always awkward sink before doing the nasty, right? Because what he's doing is truly nasty. He's raping. There's no seduction in rape and there's no culture where there is the state. So, so the problem is the presence of government, not the absence of culture. When government grows, culture dies. Because when you can force people to do stuff, you don't need to convince them to do stuff. And culture is all about convincing people to do things. There used to be a strong culture called single motherhood is really bad. That culture is no longer necessary because people are forced to pay for single mothers. So it goes away. So it wasn't like Hitler <laughs> came in with a vast reduction in government to allow culture to flourish, right? I mean, he was a national socialist. He was a big government guy. Hitler would not have solved the problem. I mean, aside of all the evil stuff, right? Hitler would not have solved the problem of a lack of culture because as a totalitarian... He might have kept migrants out, but culture in Germany well, would have culture, died. Because when you coerce, there's uh, no culture. The culture Sorry, in Germany actually took off when he was in power. Uh, I don't know if you know about the Volkish movement, but it's about you know you treasure the, the folk and the, the lore and the, uh, the history of your people. That's one of the main things that made so many people work so hard in uh, Hitler's Germany, because they, were, they felt like they were in, in a commune. They were working together. So uh, but 
No, but it's from yes, the it's states. From the state. uh, but look, there was a culture of pro-communism under Stalin. That doesn't mean it was organic. It doesn't mean it came from the people. All right, I, I, I will admit that that uh, it wouldn't necessarily have naturally formed on its own if he hadn't done anything. But I, I'd like to go back to what you. Well, so, no, if he hadn't done anything, the natural culture would have formed on its own, and it would right, have been it healthy. Would have been, wouldn't have been volkish, and it would have been all these other things that made it more militaristic. I understand. Uh, but but I'd like to go back to uh, – hey, can you hear me? Are you there? Okay. I'd like to go back to what you said before about how uh, government kills culture. Government kills um, – uh, people uh, – kills volunteerism. I think that's what you said. Uh, but I'd like to posit that in your libertarian society, when the government is gone and corporations take over – they don't take over everything, but but uh, let's say you want to get from point A to point B. Oh, no. I'm well, I just – let me continue. Let me continue. Oh, God. Uh, if you want to – yeah, okay. I'm sorry. It's just, I mean, I'm, the corporation thing. No, it's good. I'm All glad right, you're bringing it up, Zach. I, I appreciate it. Okay. Go, go for it. Go if full you, tilt. Boogie. If you want to go let's, from let's A to B, point A to point B, you know, you, get, you pay road company ABC uh, a certain amount of money and you go from place to place. Uh, road company ABC really wants to make more money. And so they don't really care if you're uh, from America or you're from Somalia or from some other place. Uh, they just want to make money. They want to have the best service so more people come to them so they can, you know, help people out in that way. That seems to me like it would destroy culture in the, the sense of the word that we know it today, which is like, uh, you know, a bunch of people wearing lederhosens, playing pipes, or people, uh, you know, dressing in kimonos and painting their face white. That kind of culture, I think, wouldn't survive in a libertarian society. Wait, wait, hang on. Are you saying, are you saying lederhosen uh, is culture? The, the, the traditions, the, um, the, the uh, I don't know, what's the term for it? Uh, ceremonies, things like that. Okay, no, the traditions, the, the cultural values, the values. The moral decisions, that's what culture is all about. I put on a pair of lederhosen, and I'm not Austrian. I'm sexy, <laughs> I'm not Austrian, right? So it's not lederhosen, and it's not songs. It's like, these are all just frou-frou. And then they're not unimportant, but that's not right. what culture um, is. I'd like to... Culture is, culture is how you make moral decisions without being a philosopher. Right. Um, okay, so are you familiar with Peter Hitchens? Yeah, uh, Christopher yes, Hitchens' yeah. brother, uh, Christopher Hitchens, the noted atheist, and Peter Hitchens, the noted theist, uh, right? Um, right. Uh, he once did um, a presentation or a debate in which someone said, oh, uh, why, do we, why are we teaching children poems? And uh, it's, it's completely pointless. It's wasting their time. And he recited a beautiful poem off the top of his head that he remembered from high school or something. And he said that it was a tremendous condemnation of his, his nation's culture to say that poems don't matter, to say that uh, ceremonies and and wearing lederhosens and things like that, they don't matter because uh, if you don't know these things, you don't really understand the uh, the mindset of your ancestors and you've, you've lost touch with the things that your ancestors knew uh, and, and such things like that. Uh, that's his argument, and I would say that that's a pretty good argument against what you say, which is that these things don't matter. What really matters is um, uh, just right and wrong. Uh, the, the whole culture, the whole uh, appreciation of art and all that stuff, it matters immensely because it, it, it's what makes people interested in the culture in the first place. Without you know, the beautiful art and the lederhosen and the, the pipes and the kimonos and things like that, people wouldn't really be interested in what is right and wrong that the, the, society, say, that the society says. Sorry if I slurred my words a little bit. Yeah, but poetry is, is heavily involved with right and wrong. Right, and I would say almost every aspect of, of uh, ceremony and tradition is also very heavily tied to it because it makes people interested in it. Here's a poem that I remember when I was a kid. Remember reading when I was a kid? Very influential. Sure. Are you ready? If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, 
If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated. Don't give way to hating. And yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone. And so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings but not lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you. If all men count with you but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. That's um, Rudyard Kipling's If. It's a great poem. Highly, highly relevant to ethical decisions. Very, very complex and embedded socio-moral arguments and it's also in not that very cultural. It's not religious in any sense of the word. Or I, I suppose you might have said God at one point there, did you? Well, first of all, I mean, the fa- it might be religious. It might be religious. And that doesn't mean it wouldn't be right. cultural. Because the purpose of religion fundamentally is the conditioning well, I think, of morals. I think religion and culture are very intertwined. I, I, I wasn't making that distinction. What I was trying to say yeah. is uh, your, yeah. the, the thing you just brought up, that, that culture, that uh, right and wrong and all that sort of stuff, um, that isn't easily transmitted in something that isn't uh, religious or or uh, some aspect of culture. Uh, if if you told that story right. or that, that beautiful poem to a guy in Africa, you know, with like a spear or something like that, you would say, "Oh, that, that's that's interesting." But I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to tell it to my children and things like that. Uh, it, it takes someone very intelligent with uh, a really good sense of what is right and wrong in order to remember that poem, think it's great, and then want to tell their children that. Uh, most people. No, no, this, Rudyard Kipling was a populist poet. He, there's nothing, it does not take great intelligence to, to understand that poem. That's the whole point of culture, is you need to translate values into okay. the common so, tone and get people motivated to do crazy things. Look, some cultures can get people to fight for freedom, to fight for rights. Other cultures get people to blow the shit of themselves up in public places and fly planes into buildings and crazy shit like that, right? So there are some cultures that embed values that help, and there are other cultures that embed values that harm. Very true. And it is um, the degree to... We, we look at, at the society that we have, and I've got a podcast coming out uh, called um, Social Market Value 
or community market value. And it's a stupid phrase. I just couldn't think of a better one in the moment. But, uh, and I won't go into it here other than to say that we look at society as it stands and we say, well, you know, we have no values. And therefore, you know, we need a government or we need a strong central leader or we need someone who's going to tell us what's what or we need someone to keep out foreigners or whatever it is. It's like, no, you have no values because you forced people using the state. And when you force people using the state, culture becomes a ridiculous and unnecessary overhead. Who are the most hostile towards culture? It is the big government people because they recognize that culture renders government as unnecessary as government renders culture wait, 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 inefficient. Wait, wait. We just talked about National Socialistic Germany. Yeah, they, they have so little trust in freedom that they want a government to impose a culture or to defend a culture. Listen, the moment you need government to defend anything, it's dead already. Mm. The moment that you need government to force you to hire someone or marry you or pay you something, your value is dead. So, so you're saying it's the people that need to keep culture alive. It can't be a government or else it's, it's just a zombie. It's being propped up. No, no, the people will keep culture alive. Culture is an economic argument fundamentally. I mean, just to look at single motherhood, right? When there's no government, people ostracize single mothers. Now, do people like ostracizing people? They don't. Ostracizing people is not fun. So, when the government pays for single mothers and people don't have to pay out of their own wallet, then people stop ostracizing. And then it becomes the heroic, wonderful single mothers who okay, are probably, um, right? So, I, I just wanted to and so, hang on, hang on, hang on. So, so, why do people want the overhead of culture? Because it's economically efficient to have that culture. So, let's say, for instance, there are two incompatible cultures living side by side. They won't mix in a free society. Right. I mean, they may mix in terms of like there'll be some trade or whatever it is, but they won't mix generally socially. And they generally won't mix when it comes to education. And, I mean, we see this in America, right? And I'm not saying these cultures are fundamentally incompatible, but, I mean, churches where affirmative action and violations of people's right to choose who they sit next to the pew with, like the vast majority of American churches are either all black right. or all white for the most part, right? So, so where you have... Different cultures. I'm opposing is too strong. I'm thinking more like uh, libertarian and uh, I don't know, radical Muslim or something like something where just obviously right. this is not this is not this oil and water, right? <laughs> Only one of which is flammable. And so, so in a free society, when you have different or opposing or incompatible cultures, people will tend to discriminate, and that doesn't mean the same as being bigoted or racist They'll or whatever. They'll separate, yeah. Uh, what, what? They'll separate, and, and hopefully then philosophers will work to give everyone a common enough set of values that culture brings people together. But when cultural values are based on irrational things like nationalism or mere history or um, religion, and then, of course they're going to have to separate because irrational values are incompatible with other irrational values. They're only compatible with like um, irrational values, whereas philosophy is compatible with everything because it's reality-based. But, you know, 
that comes at the expense of people who are currently managing their livestock by I'd their like rational wits. I'd like to interject wicks. right there. And, um, again, you are assuming yep. that everyone is extremely intelligent, um, that everyone will be able to listen no. to arguments and say, I agree with that argument. I'm going to start believing that. That isn't always the case. No, 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 no. I said culture. Philosophy will provide the base values. It's the job of the artists and the poets and the rhetoricians to translate that into emotionally compelling actions for people. Listen, I started off as an artist. I started off as a poet, as an actor, as a playwright, as a novelist. And so I know quite a lot about translating philosophical values to emotionally compelling drama. I mean, you know, there's a people want to pick up my book The God of Atheists, I think it's a prime example of what I'm talking about. Or something like um Dostoevsky did it. You can look at the Grand Inquisitor scene in The Brothers Karamazov or Ayn Rand did it or other people, right? So, it is the job of the artists to translate the values to the people. And this is one of the reasons why Plato, who was a terrible philosopher in my humble opinion, Plato has been incredibly compelling because Plato was an incredible writer who came up with some of the best allegories in the history of philosophy. You know, the allegory of the cave and uh, the symposium uh, and so on. Just wonderful allegories about the gradations of love and so on. And so it is, now maybe the philosopher and the artist can be one, but it doesn't hugely matter. But at some point, I'm not saying everyone has to go through the syllogisms because if you're right, a lot of people won't. But it is the job of the, it is the job of, you could say the propagandist, because that's, although propaganda always has a negative connotation, yeah. standpoint. Yeah, a negative connotation is a better word, thank you. Um, but the reality is that, you know, when I was a kid, there was propaganda against smoking. There was propaganda against drunk driving. No, I, I don't see it as a bad word. It's okay. If it saved lives, great, right? I don't see it as a Sorry? bad word. That's okay. Um, right. But it's a way of making uh, abstract arguments emotionally compelling for people, and that's what happens in a free society. In a free society, people are, they care about other people's children. The, the idea, like this modern idea, and it is a very modern idea. You can't tell me how to raise my kids. You know, throughout history, that idea would have been completely incomprehensible. For like 99% of human history, people would have said, yes, I can, <laughs> because I'm going to have to live with your children when they grow up. So yes, I get to tell you how to raise your kids. But this idea, well, they're my kids. I can do what I want. You can't tell me how to raise your kids. Yeah, I can. Because you're going to die and your kids are going to be living with me and my kids. So, yes, I do get to say how you raise your children. I mean, imagine growing up in like 17th century in a Quaker village in the 17th century. And you're like, hey, I think I'm going to turn my kids on to Satan. <laughs> right? <laughs> can you imagine? Hey, kids. Go to the playground and tell other people, Hail Satan! Yay, Satan! <laughs> Do you think the other parents would come up have a bit of a problem with you? Why, yes, they would! <laughs> and you say, you can't tell me how to raise my kids. Actually, and you know what? Can. Those people would then engage in the initiation of force called the state in order to stop those people from uh, acting uh, and spreading that. No, they, they wouldn't. wouldn't. Are you kidding? Well, the Quakers the would kick them out. Oh, no. The Quakers, 
they would shun their asses. No, they wouldn't kick them out. They wouldn't no, kick they would them out. Them. They would shun them, which is way more powerful and way cheaper. But it just requires the kind of moral courage that you only have in a voluntary society. Because in a status society, you get the government to do all the heavy lifting and your, muscle, your moral muscles get weak, right? Because the government goes and forces everyone to do it. No, they would shun them. Look, I mean, how do the Amish survive? They don't have the police round up the people who go on their rumspringer or whatever the hell it is, their rum, rum spring break, rum late spring break, I don't know. But they don't round up the people who don't come back, right? right? Okay. And, and, right? You try to leave Islam, you got to outrun a bullet, right? But the Amish, they, they ostracize the kids who leave the community. I'm not saying this is all great and right. I'm just do. saying that right, it's very um, powerful. I, I would like that's to, what they do. I'd like to bring it up works. something that's a bit more modern. Um, so you say uh, Amish people will shun people they don't agree with and those people will leave. Uh, but shunning is a two-way street. By ignoring people and, and keeping them out of your society, you are also keeping your children from being exposed to what they believe in. Whereas in the modern age, um, people that you know, do something bad, like a single mothers and things like that, saying, oh, being single mothers, great. Uh, those people are shunned maybe one way, but not two ways. You know, uh, young children growing up, they get pregnant, they, they look at the TV and they say, they see that being a single mother is perfectly fine and all that stuff. Um, even though, even if you live in a wonderful free society where everyone uh, believes in, you know, single motherhood being bad, the, the, the kids will still be exposed to it. So it, it won't be the same sort of two-way shunning. Wait, I don't know what you're saying. Okay. Exposed ah, to what? This is uh, kind of an abstract concept I'm trying to explain. So Amish people, it, it, shunning the <laughs> uh, Satanist, right? The Satanist uh, is being shunned, and uh, so the, the kids of the Amish people don't have to deal with the Satanist. The kids of the Satanist don't have to deal with the kids of the Amish, right? Because it's a two-way shunning. Whereas in modern society, that is not possible because the ideas will still get out. No, 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 no. It's not. No, no, no. The example I gave was not a two-way shunning. Because the Satan, the, the Satanist Quaker, I think we have a show title. But when the Satanist Quaker sends his kids out to convert the other Quaker kids to Satanism, he's not shunning them. He's actively engaging with them. No, but, but when they are being shunned, when, when they keep their kids away from them, that, that separates the kids. They're separated. They can't communicate. Wait, when the, so when the Quaker kids say to the Quaker Satan kids, uh, you, can't, you can't play with those kids. Can't play with the Quaker right. Satan kids, right? But the Quaker Satan kids want to play with the Quaker kids, but the Quaker kids don't want to play with the Quaker Satan kids. So it's a one-way shunning. <laughs> this is so convoluted. Um, uh, no, it's not. It's okay, one-way shunning. So who, who, is being, who is not being exposed to new ideas in, in this situation? The, the Satanist Quaker kids or the ordinary Quaker kids? So the they're not being Quaker exposed kids. to any new ideas. Well, yeah, because their parents want to keep them away from the Satan Quaker right. kids. Right. Um, but but you're, you're saying that the Satan Quaker kids uh, also will – no, no. It, they will, will be shunned. They want to go play so with the other they, kids. They will not be shunned. They will still be exposed to the ideas of the ordinary Quaker kid. Well, no, because nobody's right, so playing. That's a two-way shunning. I mean, they they won't that's be two-way shunning. To, right? Neither of them are sharing ideas. That's what happened in the past. No, you, you can't you can't use the word shunning that way because shunning is the active act of excluding someone from your social circle who wants to be in your social right. circle, right? It's not like I'm shunning a whole bunch of people who don't speak English, right? <laughs> right? I mean, like people want to, so shun. You can't just say suddenly we're transferring to ideas and there's a non-transference of ideas. I'm like, you're shunning for that. Well, right? if you kick them, shunning is just it's an act of social ostracism and exclusion of people who want okay. in. Uh, the Amish aren't shunning me because I don't want in, right? Uh, 
Okay. So if you want to talk about ideas and cross-pollinization or fertilization, that's fine. You just can't use the word shunning to include the non-transmission of ideas in a two-way street as opposed to an active, willed, individual act of All social right, exclusion. Um, let, let's see if I can try and explain my point a bit better. I'm going to diverge from the Amish. I know it's a, it's a great concept, but I'm going to move from the Amish to the 1920s. Now we're in the 1920s. Uh, so I, I previously talked about the Industrial Revolution. I think you'll remember that. And... Uh, in the Industrial Revolution, religion and culture and all these different things started fading away because people were living in this new town. They didn't have their own village and their own, you know, rolling hills to tell tales about. So culture and religion sort of dissipated. And what? No. No, that's incorrect. Are you saying that the Victorian age was somehow not a strong cultural age? The Victorian age was the late 19th no, it, century. No, it was still strongly cultural. I, I just, I'd like to... That's when the whole damn empire was going on, and they, the British were out there saying, we got the white man's burden to colonize the savage races Very of the true. earth. And I mean, there's a huge cultural imperative. That's what this true. poem that, was written. That's 50 years after about the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, maybe a little bit longer. But what I'm trying to bring up is the children of those people that grew up in that time when culture became a little bit weaker were the 1920s people, you know, uh, that they were drinking and uh, being expatriates and things like that. Uh, that is a, a definite uh, separation from the past, you know, ancient historical uh, belief in the nation of Britain, that sort of uh, a culture, towards a different sort of culture of cosmopolitanism. Uh, and, and so uh, that brings me back to the, the libertarianism concept, where if everyone is, is free, and there, there's uh, that you don't you're not around people that look like you that believe all the same things as you do. Uh, you will eventually tend towards cosmopolitanism and uh, the, forgetting your culture, which, in my opinion, or in the opinion of people I'm representing here, uh, will, will lead to what is called degeneracy, the degeneration of your culture, because these people were drinkers. They were having a lot more sex than they were in the past and things like that. So uh, uh, lack of a strong culture, lack of a strong uh, like nation that you support. So nationalism. Uh, usually will lead to um, uh, down like you, you understand what I'm saying, right? That the people will start drinking more, still having more sex, they'll start being uh, more single mothers, that sort of a thing. Okay, so you're talking about the Industrial Revolution, but you kind of skipped over the First World War. Um, that also led to it as well. Um, the, the First World War led to more cosmopolitanism because people had to collaborate, and also people had uh, they they fought for so long they stopped liking the idea of like the noble warrior and all that kind of stuff. People had, uh, I think you cover this often, and you believe in this a lot, where they fought for so much for so long that they, they hated the idea of fighting anymore, right? And that's why the war ended. <sighs> they hated the idea of fighting anymore, and that's why the war ended? Well, uh, okay, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing you. It wasn't you. the soldier's choice to fight. They were shot if they didn't. Right. Um, and then when the war ended, the reason the war stopped and people didn't continue going to fight was because they were so disheartened from war. Right? I thought you covered this. I thought you were the one that, that gave me this idea that the reason um, the reason the war ended in Japan wasn't that we destroyed their army. It was that they, the, the people had such a uh, – they, they were so disillusioned with fighting that they, they stopped fighting. Didn't you, you – I don't – I mean, look, I mean, I've done thousands of shows. I don't I, recall I, saying that the war ended because people got tired of fighting. I think the war ended because uh, there was no possibility for victory anymore. I mean, after the Americans came in. In the First World War, they brought so many resources to the European theater that there was no chance for Germany to win. And Germany, in order to, be avoid, to avoid being invaded, um, decided to surrender. Japan was surrounded and uh, was being repeatedly bombed and then decided to surrender. There's no chance for them to win. Oh, okay. Um, we, we can argue And about then what happened, of course, sorry, what, what happened after the Second World War, sorry, what happened after the First World War, Zach, was that... Uh, 
um, governments had to pay huge amounts. Uh, uh, the losing sides, they had to pay huge amounts of reparations. And, but even the winning sides, they, they'd lost millions of, of working age men who were their tax base. And they had uh, huge medical bills from the people who had survived uh, the war, but who were broken in mind and spirit. They had, of course, war widows' pensions to pay. They had contracted enormous, staggering amounts of debt during the war. And so what happened in the 1920s was an orgy of frivolity. money printing. Yes, okay. Oh, and no, no, not frivolity. That was just an effect, right? So what happened was the governments basically took over the giant levers of the economy with central banking, with currency manipulations, and so on. And this created the Roaring Twenties. But of course, because the government was taking over the economy and the, the government was now providing for the war widows and for the people who were sick. And so there was, no, there was less need for culture because the government was paying the bills okay. for millions and millions of people. So uh, can, I, can I argue against that or bring something up? Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the Black Death killed like one-third of everyone in Europe at the time. Uh, it didn't cause them to stop being Christian. In fact, a lot of the time it made people more Christian. Whereas the First World War uh, made a lot of people absolutely renounce Christianity. They, they lost their Christianity. Why didn't that happen during the Black Plague? I would posit it did because no, no, listen, listen, it did. And, and one of the reasons why it happened during the Black Death, and I've talked about this in the show before, one of the reasons why it happened during the Black Death was because it, it attacked kings the wages, and peasants, right? No, no, let me finish. The wages of sin is death. And the people who died the most by far were priests because the priests were at the deathbeds of all the people dying. And so they contracted the uh, bubonic plague the most. And so uh, priests died, and it, you know, it wasn't an accident that after the fifth or sixth successive wave of the Black Death that you get the Protestant Reformation. Okay. So there was significant skepticism. Remember, very roughly, Catholicism was Christianity, and the beginning of Protestantism was the end of Christianity as it was perceived at the time. Now we think of them all as Christian, but that wasn't the case in the past. Oh, okay. So I, I guess I'm wrong with that. Um, what, was, what was my point? My point was um, that uh, Christianity and culture at the time of the uh, Industrial Revolution was greatly weakened by people going off into factories and, and losing their culture, and they didn't have a government that strictly enforced their culture, and so they ended up being, uh, what, what's the term, term for it? I don't know, expatriates. The guys like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, those guys, drinking all the time, drinking absinthe, and writing books about sex and things like that, which is a uh, going back or uh, losing refinement that they had in the past. Yeah, I mean, my argument would be because government was paying the bills, people could afford to become social relativists and amoral and nihilistic and so on because, uh, because the government took over paying the bills for most people or for a lot of people. Um, the, the culture became an unnecessary overhead. Why bother? All right. Um, so would you say I mean, that— Well, why bother having—like in the modern world, why bother having an anti— Single mom culture when you don't pay for them anyway. I mean, not directly. You can't avoid, right? All right, all right. Um, so uh, let me just get this straight. What you imagine is a bunch of people are, are like floating over a great big abyss, and they have culture holding them up. And state comes in and holds them up as well, and then the culture fades away, and they're being held up by the state. And if there wasn't a state, then they would fall, right? Is that what you're trying to paint? Is that the picture you're painting? No, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the state diminishes, culture will Oh, this the culture will come back. All right. Of course it will, yeah. Okay, so um, going back to I mean, the you question. Take a rock, you take a rock out of a stream, the water doesn't keep going around it, just fills it in, right? Right, all right. Um, so going back to my original question, which is the difference between uh, 
I think the exact words I used was uh, powerful nationalistic regional state versus libertarianism is uh, you say that right now the state is pumping everyone up and so people have an awful culture. They allow for uh, single motherhood, for example. Uh, but if you take away the state, culture will flow back in and, and take the place and hold people up. And then people will stop believing in single motherhood and all that stuff. And it's only the state keeping people up. Is that basically your uh, concept? Yeah, I mean, we ha simply have to look at where, where the government spends the most on people, there is the worst culture. I mean, who receives the most money and resources in America? Single mothers and poor people and people nope. who don't want to work. Nope. No? No. Natives. Uh, could you elaborate? Well, Native Americans, Native Canadians, the indigenous population that were here when the whites came um, or the Europeans came, they receive the most resources. And their culture is the worst. What? Next would be, next would be blacks, and their culture is the worst. Okay, I'm going to need you to explain this. I'm, I'm interested here. Explain what? Um, uh, the, the, their culture is the worst. What do you mean by that? I mean... Rates of alcoholism, of suicidality, oh, of modern, nihilism. Okay, their modern culture. Okay, so what you're saying is they, they lost their culture. Oh, yeah, I'm talking about people. They, let, let me put it this way. The, the natives weren't receiving government money before there was a government from right. Europe. Okay, right? So, of course, I'm talking about contemporary culture. Right? Okay, so, so we're agreeing on the concept that people are floating over this abyss and uh, either the state or culture holds them up or some combination in between. And if you get rid of the culture, then the state will prop them up. If you get rid of the state, the culture will prop them up like that, right? No, no, that's all, almost completely incorrect. Sorry. What? First well, of all, I haven't said anything about hovering over an abyss. I well, don't even I, know what that, that means. Up. I brought that up. Like, I know, but you're saying, you're saying my basic argument is, and then you're characterizing it in a way that I've never mentioned. That's not a way of phrasing my argument correctly. Like. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to misrepresent you, but I thought that's what you meant with your indigenous people argument, where they lost their culture, and now the state is holding them up. And they, because the state is holding them no, up, no, no. But you're saying that people are hanging over. Wait, you're saying people are hanging over an abyss. Well, it doesn't exist. And I, the I, culture. Or, or the government saves them. I don't even know. What is this abyss, though? Uh, is that nihilism? Um, I don't know. Fallout 4, just chaos, right? S society. Yeah, I, I, I've, not made any of that. I've not made any of those arguments, so I don't know where this hanging over the abyss things comes from. Right. We, have a natural, we have a natural environment. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of like saying, well, well, rabbits are either they're hanging over an abyss, and they're either going to have to go and find their own food, or they're going to get owned by people, kept as pets, and people will feed them. I don't know what the hanging over the abyss is. You know, <laughs> I mean, they, they need to eat, and they're either going to find their own food or get fed by their owners. But you know, and hanging over an abyss seems like an unnecessary addition to the the issue or the question. And I just wanted to point that out because it's right. not it's, an argument that I've made about hanging over an abyss or whatever that means. Yeah, it, it's a bad analogy. Sorry about that. I probably should have said something like uh, that. No, something else. I should have said something else. But anyway. Um, right. And then the other part uh, was that um, if, uh, if culture goes away, you get more government, you said. And if government goes away, you, you get more culture. Right. And that's, that wasn't my argument at all. Um, my argument wasn't, well, culture just mysteriously vanishes and then government rushes in. My argument is that the natural state of human beings is social enforcement through culture. And how do we know that? Because there were no governments in the vast majority of our evolution, hunter-gatherer societies, right? And tribal hierarchies and so on, but not governments as we would understand. So 
violent redistributionist coercive welfare state, <laughs> anything like that, right? No, no fiat currency uh, when we were just basically chasing the ass end of an antelope every time we got hungry. And so it's not that, well, culture mysteriously vanishes and government rushes in to fill the void. No. People who would face ostracism for their bad decisions turn to the government to avoid the effects of ostracism. And through turning to the government, and this is just one of the many mechanisms by which it can grow, but through this turning to the government, they end up creating an environment where culture is an unnecessary overhead and falls away. And then people can start making fun of people who have values and wish to enforce them as like prudish and intrusive and busybodies and in you know because right they, they can start to make fun of like the church lady right <laughs> i don't know if you ever watched that old dana carvey snl skit but uh the church lady was like <laughs> he was she, she was like the pure socialist mockery of culture right we've got the government so now we can make fun of the church lady and we can make fun of anybody who wants to impose their values on other as a weird uptight victorian prude in your face, in your business, won't leave people alone, neurotic, right? Okay. And in a weird way, they're kind of right. And so in the past, when people actually had to pay for single mothers, they would be invested in not having them. And the way that they would do that is they would ostracize the single mothers until the single mothers gave up the children to be adopted because that was what was best for the children. Okay. And then when you gave the children up to be adopted... Then you could go to some new town and you could be a single mom, a single woman who didn't have kids and you'd lie about it or whatever or whatever, right? But, but society would act in a way that would transfer the children to the environment which would be by far the best for them, which would be to, raise, to be raised in a two-parent household. And that was how society... And, and that's because society knew that if uh, single motherhood ran rampant, then, you know, crime and... and uh, oh, drugs, drunk, drunkenness, and more single motherhood, and uh, it would all just run rampant and be a huge disaster. You name it, right? But now that society is not paying anything direct for single moms, or at least can't avoid paying it through the state, well, now if you're concerned about single motherhood, you're just considered to be some weird, neurotic, bizarre, <laughs> you know, busybody, and yeah, well, why would anyone bother? Live and let live. They're fine. They're wonderful. They're doing fine. They're great. You know? <laughs> Yeah, because ostracism is unpleasant, it's difficult, and nobody wants to do it. And so when the government takes over the costs of dysfunctional social behavior, people don't want to enforce it, and then you get lots of people making fun of those people. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and then decades later, everyone goes like, oh, shit, those people were right. I mean, we see uh, two examples that popped to mind was Daniel Moynihan's 1965 report on the coming disastrous in black families because of the welfare state. And everyone called him a racist, and everyone said he was wrong, and it won't have any effect, and blah, blah, blah. Another one is uh, all the people who said, I guess we just passed the 50-year um, anniversary of Ted Kennedy's 1965 Immigration Act that said, well, enough of compatible Europeans, let's bring in as many third-worlders as humanly possible. Uh, that's not going to cause any problems at all. Um, and of course, they lied about all of that and said it wasn't going to change the demographics of the nation and all that. And now there's you know, 50 to 60 million third worlders imported who vote 8 to 2 to keep Democrats in power. Democrats realized after the fall of the Soviet Union that they couldn't win the argument for socialism, so they just started importing people who were more used to bigger government, and that's how they pretended to win the debate. And the third, of course, is um, 
more colloquial, the uh, Dan Quayle criticizing the choice of the television sitcom character played by Candace Bergen called Murphy Brown to have a child as a single mother in her 40s. Uh, he said this is not in the best interest of the child, and of course everyone shat all over him from a great pontificating liberal Hollywood height. And uh, now Candace Bergen, who led that charge, has of course, now that it's far too late to do anything about it, has said, you know, we were wrong, and Dan Quayle was right, because she can read numbers with a clear brain now. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, now everybody looks weird when they want to um, control things uh, socially, and then decades later it turns out that they were right, but uh, by then the damage is long intractable. Okay, it seems like you're very interested in this concept of single motherhood and all that, and I think that's a very interesting topic, but I'd, I'd like to get back to the whole uh, libertarianism and uh, fascism and all that, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, hang on, hang on, what are you talking about? Oh, we're, we're kind of going off on a tangent. What are you talking about interested in the single motherhood thing? Uh, no, you're, uh, we, we, we talk about various things, then you go back to it. And I think that's it's very interesting, but I'd like to, to cover the, con- the the question that I asked. No, no, no. Uh, no I, uh, I gave the example of the black family. Right, right, right. Um, right, and that's not just, not just single motherhood. That was also to do with the black family as well. Right, I'm not trying to uh, insult you or anything. I'm just, I'm just trying to continue on with the debate. So um, I think we can both agree that... that um, uh, uh, large state and, and culture are sort of opposed a little bit, right? Where um, culture rushes in, state rushes in, like that, what we were talking about, where uh, there, there's no need for the cultural overhead, like what you said. Um, now, uh, let, let's go into your, your uh, libertarian society. Um, we're going to have a whole bunch of people that all believe in, in good morals, and they all have a strong culture of uh, single motherhood is bad, and things like that, in your libertarian society. Um, the problem is that people who don't believe in that stuff will be able to immigrate in, or uh, people who have dissenting opinions, people can freely change their opinions and things like that, and so the society can change from your wonderful paradise into uh, Iran, which isn't a good thing. No, 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 they won't. No, because, because nobody will, like, let's say that um, uh, Minnesota, right? Uh, Minnesota, let's just say it's, you know, all, let's just all white and Christian, right? All right. And then a bunch of Muslim Somalis want to move in, right? And let's say that, unlike in the present situation, people in Minnesota are perfectly free to discriminate, right? Okay. Well, will those Somali and Muslims succeed in, the, in Minnesota if nobody wants to rent them places, if nobody wants to hire them, if no, right? So um, I think what you're arguing for is something that I think that the people I'm representing here are also supporting, which is nationalism or the ability to, to choose no, your own people no, over no. external people. No, no. It's just I just said it's the right to discriminate, which is perfectly... Forced association is a violation of freedom of association. It's perfectly liberal and perfectly, sorry, it's perfectly libertarian to say, uh, I don't want to hire uh, someone from another culture. I'm not saying that's me. I'm just saying it's perfectly valid and perfectly, it's no violation of the non-aggression principle to refuse to do business with someone. Okay. So, but then those people would still so be around. So it's not nationalism. Sorry? But, but those people would still be around, right? They, unless well, no, no, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. Because if nobody's willing to rent them places, if nobody wants to hire them, and there's no welfare state, how are they going to survive? Okay, very good. So that's, I would say, um, people separating based on their own belief systems and forming their own groups, which can be called nations. So not necessarily nationalism that they hate other people. It's nationalism in the sense that they, they are separate. Um, yeah. Okay. Human beings are tribal. Yeah. So um, then those people all living together, they could be libertarianism. They could be libertarian. They can be 
anything, right? Uh, but I, I would say that this model of the world that we are representing here, where people have values and people with other values, that they, they won't get hired because the values are so different, they can't really work together. That resembles um, uh, like monarchies or some other, what I would say is a powerful nationalistic regional state. Yeah, I I, I don't know. Listen, I mean, I, I think I'm going to have to wind it up here. And I, I, I've enjoyed the conversation, but I just feel like we're we're not communicating at all. And by that, I mean, you're not listening. Right. So I'm saying that that like how how we go from people uh, not wanting to hire people whose values directly clash with their own. To it's now royalty or a nation state. Uh, I just that's too much of a leap. And, you know, we've been circling the 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 uh the topic for a while now and i think we're still uh, at sixes and sevens so i'm gonna have to sign off by saying it's you know a very enjoyable chat i think we've done a lot to help people but i think that we're just not able to get at the basic principles that can bring us to accord in this uh, conversation act but i you know i do appreciate the call and, and really did enjoy the chat oh my biggest my biggest role model doesn't like me oh well see you next time though. no i didn't say it. no i see here here again i'm just saying that we're not uh, we're not able to now you're jumping off to i don't like you no, I, I just i just said i really appreciated the chat and really enjoyed the conversation but the uh, the law of diminishing returns has been met for me it doesn't mean anything wrong just you know that's where we're at all right but um uh, no and i really did appreciate and enjoy the conversation but um you know we're just not able to get to a place where we're on agreement on the basic principles i'm talking about freedom of association and you're turning that into a monarchy and uh, <laughs> i just don't know how we we get there but anyway thanks everyone so much for listening of course a wonderful wonderful delightful meaningful deep and quasi-spiritual experience for me to have this kind of conversation with the world i appreciate all the listeners who call in who uh, share their thoughts and feelings with the world and uh I think help bring out the best in me in terms of what I can bring to the table. So thank you everyone so much. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. You know you want to. You know we need you to. So please, please, please go to Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful day.